everyone, Robbie here and welcome to episode 15 of the Coach's Journey podcast. Um, and the guest in this episode is Toku McCree. Uh, now Toku is a former Zen monk and a renowned executive coach. Um, and his journey into coaching began when his life changed when he met the eyes of a guy across the room at a party. And this guy just had a kind of calmness about him that Toku had never seen before. Now, from there, he fell in love with meditation, which ended with him spending two and a half years in a Zen monastery before he came out and went on then to launch a six-figure coaching practice. Toku had a, a you know a really interesting first decade of career of his career. He had over thirty different jobs by the time he was thirty, from running a sumo chicken boxing ring. Um, you have to listen to find out exactly what that is. To tuning guitars for rock bands, being a preschool teacher, even working on a political campaign. But it was a time as a monk when he realised that the sense of purpose and meaning that he'd been avoiding throughout most of his 20s was what he needed to turn his life towards. Toku's also a writer, and his writing and thoughts have been featured in The Huffington Post, Zen Habits, TEDx, The Good Men Project, and many more. And one of the things you'll find out about through this uh, podcast is that Toku has done amazing thinking around the concepts of sales so much so that his his upcoming book the art of honorable sales is really a love letter to the process of selling um and and yet not necessarily selling in the way that people sometimes think of it especially coaches but the art of honorable sales sales with honor so in the episode, we get into loads and loads of different things, why there is a particular time as a coach to set a rate and stick to it and the practice of raising our rates, sales as with honor, but also as a spiritual practice, um, the end of an enrollment process, we get into a lot of detail there about magic questions to ask and how to find the tension um, uh, f- that leads to commitment for people. Um, and there's actually, Toku makes a really generous offer uh, to get a look at a beta version of his book. Um, so you can find that in links in the show notes. But also, I think for some people, they really won't, they re- will really want to read that after they've heard this episode. So I absolutely love this episode. One of my favorites to listen back to so far. And it's the first one where the, the, the afternoon and evening after we'd recorded, even the next morning, the, the things that we'd spoken about, the insights um, that Toku had shared, his presence, all his thinking was really running through my head and my being. And I could feel some energy changing around that, around various things. So I really hope that, that um, you get that too. There's loads of, of great distinctions in there, including how in coaching, Toku, I love this, Toku is uh, flips between the Buddha and a guy called Klaus, who knows all the processes, um, and how enrollment, it's more about the hunter and the monk. And uh, again, listen to for him talking about that. I have just this feeling from, from this episode that Toku is speaking to something really important, and that his way of thinking about sales, about this process, makes this stuff really important to most coaches to listen to. So I, I really hope you get that. There's this sense of sales as an integrated process. So um, we can really change our relationship to it so that we're neither the kind of manipulative salesperson archetype, but neither are we the person uh, where a lot of coaches maybe sometimes get stuck, where, um, as Toku says, sales is the one story we won't look at, even though we're examining all the stories in our life. Um, we really get into uh, the depths of his work, um, both about how he creates 
big money clients um, and, you know, that six-figure coaching business, of course, there are some clients who pay him a lot of money, but also how he feels about rates being different for different people, how he creates things at different price points so that, that his work allows him to work with the people he really wants to work with. Um, so people who want detail, there's loads of it in this. We both have a great, a great time. Um, we both have a great time kind of geeking out about some of the detail, which is really fun. Um, and I should say that this isn't just about sales. Um, you know, we get a re- you get a real sense from this episode of the depth of Toku, of what happens when you really look at those, those Zen practices and, and live them, um, and the sense of, you know, things that he's learned from that, like how to have death as an altar, you know, and, and help his clients see that they really, really lived. Um, plus... Uh, you get a little bit of me getting some great, very swift coaching around ease and a lovely moment at the end, um, which I really like, where I get to feel a little bit of of Toku's love on the end of a sword. And, and I'm not going to say more about that because that's pretty much the first thing we talk about. So, um, look, I hope you get loads out of this episode. Um, if you're like me, you'll be taking notes um, and going back to it and making a note and, and thinking to, to do that. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoy the show. And without further ado... Like, can't wait to introduce you to Toku McCree. Toku, welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. And it's great to have you here. Um, I'm just going to, I just, this afternoon, as I was thinking that we were going to record this, um, I was remembering the first time that I became aware of you. And you don't know the story, but um, I was at uh, Rich Litman Intensive. And somehow what was happening, I can't remember the exact setup, was that People were sharing with the whole group, probably 150 people there, something they were scared of. And someone stood up to, to do this and Rich gave them some coaching. And what came out was there were some people in the room that this guy um, was intimidated by, but really wanted to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Rich said, oh, is there someone like, like who is one of those people? And the guy turned around and said, Toku, and pointed at you. And that was the first time that I, that I was aware of you. And I was like, oh, this is cool. Who's this guy? And why is he intimidating? And I need to learn that. Mm. And since then, I've uh, learned a bit more about you in, in different ways. We were just talking about a great, um, before we switched on the recording, just a great uh, podcast episode you did on the Coaches Rising podcast uh, with Joel, who's a previous podcast guest. And yeah, and uh, I've come across you through that and a bunch of other ways. But it's great to have you here. Yeah. It's funny that intimidating thing has followed me my whole life and I've never understood it. I, I remember from a very early age, I was, I was in a, a church choir camp and I went to talk to the choir director and I was sort of like, these kids are kind of weird around me and they like, why aren't they more friendly to me? And he said to me, he goes, well, you know, you're really intimidating. And I was just like, you know, very struck because um, I'm not a very large human being. I'm, you know, five, four. And at that time I was even smaller. I think I weighed probably like 75 or hundred pounds. And so the idea that I would be intimidating was just very confusing to me. Um, and yet throughout my whole life, that theme of me being intimidating has come up. Like I remember even a friend I made, um, at, a WDS and he said, Oh, when I first met you, I had a hard time connecting with you because I found you really intimidating. This guy is like six, five, two ten, like weightlifter dude. And so I've struggled a lot with that in my life, this, I, that I am intimidating and how to be with that and accept that as part of who I am and, and really embrace it. Um, yeah. yeah. How interesting. What, what's your intuition looking back or with the awareness you've got now about what it is, if it's not the fact that, you know, you're six, four and 210 pounds or whatever, what is it mm. that, that, that people get that from or take that from? You know, I was in a, 
a therapy session recently with um, with my therapist and I was talking about how like I kind of want my love to be very like gentle and soft and friendly. And she was like, well, but that's just not how your love is. <laughs> she said, your love comes comes on the end of a sword. And um, I mean, I, that's hard because it, 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 it can be a challenge for connection when your love comes on the end of a sword. And it is a source of a lot of my power and who I am as a coach. And for a long time, I felt like I really had to like hide that or get rid of that if I was going to create love or connection in my life. And I've started to see that the people who really love and appreciate me for who I am are the people who really kind of they want love at the end of the sword for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Just to, just to slow down and think about the stories we get about or pick up about what kind of love is, is okay to give or how it's okay to love. And mm. there's something about, there's not perhaps enough conversation in society or certainly over here in the UK, but I think it's the same in the States about love. And yeah, it's like, and I don't know if it's this, but it, there's something, uh, you know, particularly as a man, I, I don't know if that's true. Um, it feels true for me that I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure how many great role models of men who love like mm. a man I have in my life. I have some. Um, and there is something, you know, perhaps it's the sword and the fact that I love, you know, fantasy novels. And that feels like one of the ways I, you know, love reading swords and sorcery stuff feels like one of the ways I indulge my manness and boyness and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I love on the end of a sword. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways that that's, that's why I found such a home in coaching because like I, I often struggled with like working with other leaders when I had different jobs. I mean, I had over 30 jobs before I was 30 years old. And there was this consistent theme of I would like point out stuff and challenge my bosses. And they were sort of like, you know, shut up and do your job. Right? That's what you want an employee to do. Right. They weren't able to hand my cha- handle my challenge. Same thing was true in high school. Like I got kicked out of classes all the time when I was in school because I would challenge my teachers. And they couldn't, they sort of couldn't handle my love at the end of a sword, right? They couldn't handle that challenge. And something about the beautiful equilibrium of coaching where you get to both lead, right? You're getting to lead a leader, but from a place that's not, um, you know, having an employee challenge you can be quite threatening, right? Um, Having a client challenge you as a coach can be quite threatening, but having someone who's in the corner, who's just sort of your corner man and challenge you in a way that is both unattached and loving is so amazing and so powerful. And so, yeah, in some ways, I feel like when I discovered coaching was like, oh, there's this profession that's actually tailor made hmm. to this very particular thing about me that like has felt completely, completely out of place everywhere in the world. But in this one place, in this one profession, this one way of being in the world, like it's really welcomed. It actually has me be really effective. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, like, tell me when, di- when or how did you first come across coaching? Yeah. Um, well, I realize I'm going to tell you this story, but my story will then sort of get out of order, but that's not yeah, a problem. Yeah, that's okay. So, um, I had an eight year career in the music business and then I, uh, what were you doing in the music business? Was that the 30 jobs, the 30 different jobs? I mean, I, that, there were a ton of different jobs. I mean, I did everything from, I ran a sumo chicken boxing ring in high school where I got people to put on chicken suits and get inside an inflatable ring and punch each other, which became great help later on when I had to sell, right? Sort of a sales job. <laughs> uh, I did that. I was a preschool teacher. Um, 
in the music business, I worked as a guitar tech and a stage manager. So I tuned guitars for a rock band live on stage. Um, I was a manager of artist development, which was really just a glorified office manager. I did t-shirts. I ran a music venue. I packed boxes and shipped CDs. Like I kind of did everything from the glorious and amazing to the boring and mundane in the music business. Um, and I, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of the, a lot of the work I do with leaders now is actually really informed by that because I saw the challenges that celebrities or successful musicians face, like their reality gets a bit distorted. Right. And the same thing is true of leaders as well. Um, I didn't realize the value of that until much later. Um, anyway, so I, I moved to Portland, Oregon. I got this amazing job working at this music venue and then I caught my boss stealing from the band. So she was changing the ticket count numbers and I confronted her cause it was wrong and I got fired. And then I was like, okay, well, I don't, I don't want to work in the music business anymore. Like I just felt done with it. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. And I was at this party and it's interesting. I, it's almost like, um, when people tell the story of like when they met their, met their wife or their husband, it's like that this memory has that kind of quality to it of like the room parted. And then um, this guy named Lowell was at the party and he just seemed like really calm and like a way that I was like, what is this guy's deal? Can I, can I curse? Yeah. curse yeah. Okay, great. What is this guy's fucking deal? <laughs> How is he so fucking calm? Cause he was like 23 or 24 and I was 28 and he was just like really calm, calm in a way that I'd never experienced someone like being calm. And so I started talking to him and he was like, Oh, I've been living at this monastery and I've been hiking in Ireland. And I was like, Oh, forget about Ireland. Tell me about the monastery part. And I probably, and he probably wanted to like go and meet a girl or something at this party. I just, you know, pushed him into a corner and kind of like chewed his ear off and got as much information about this monastery as I could. And there was something about that experience or, or, or the way he was being um, that when he invited me to come try a meditation, I was like, yeah, I'll totally do it. So I started meditating, um, which was the first time in my life, other than smoking pot, where I felt like I was able to like slow my mind down and be present with my life and really fell in love with meditation. Within a month, I'd done my first silent retreat. Within two months, I had spent, I'd gone for my first long retreat, which is sort of seven day session. And then by the end of the year, I decided I was going to move into the monastery. This is a Zen monastery in Northern Oregon, incredibly rigorous schedule. And, but I was like, okay, I'll move here for like a month or two. And then, um, you know, if nothing else, it'll be like a fun story to like tell at parties. Like, oh, I lived at a monastery. It's so cool. Which I imagine and it then is. It is still, yeah, people, <laughs> it is still a fun story to tell at parties. And I just, I just fell in love with the practice. Um, it sort of cracked me wide open in a way that I didn't really know how to handle. I mean ton of my grief and disappointment in myself and regret about the past, like all started coming forward. And I had these people who were all like dedicated to this deep meanings, meaningful spiritual life all around me. And I got to work with these two incredible Zen masters who like saw things in me and humbled me in a really powerful way. And so I just kept like recommitting, right? It was like you know, a month and then three months and then six months and then a year and another year. Um, and all said and done, I, I stayed there for two and a half years and this, really deep, potent, powerful spiritual container where we meditated four hours a day and did a long, silent retreat every month. And um, it had me realize that the purpose and meaning that in a way I'd been avoiding for most of my 20s was where I had to turn my life towards. And after a period of very long, dry meditation in a, like over a month, I, well, I was really seeking what is my life's purpose. I got this very clear, I don't know how else to describe it, but a transmission, which was sort of um, 
the pr- my purpose of my life is to be of deep and fundamental service to those walking the path of awakening. Like that is what I'm here to do on the planet. And I got really clear that that wasn't at the monastery. Um, like that's a whole other story about how I went through that process, but I left the monastery with that clear understanding and I tried a few different things to get there. So I was a preschool teacher. I worked on some political campaigns. Um, I was a personal trainer and eventually I found my way to coaching. And it, it was because a roommate at the time had said, Hey, will you help me train for this half marathon? I started training her. But what happened is in the middle of those conversations or while we were on our walks, she, she was going to walk it. I started really talking to her about her life and what she wanted and what was possible using some of the things I'd learned from the monastery and from my, my philosophy degree. And I realized like, Oh, there's something about this conversation that we're having. That's not just about like, you know, did the football team win? Or are you going to go get milk about like, what is life about and what do I want to get out of it? And how do I use, how do I use this precious gift called life? That was like, I was like, Oh, this is the conversation that like, I just want to be having all the time. And so when I really discovered that coaching was like, that's basically it. Like you basically get to sit with people and have that conversation over and over and over and over again. I was like, Oh, why would I do anything else? Like everything else just feels like uh, prelude or postlude to that conversation. So yeah, that's basically how I discovered coaching. Yeah. And what, do, you, do you remember how you literally discovered it? Had you been aware of it, you know, as, as coaching as we think of it? I mean, obviously there was a kind of personal trainer element there and maybe in sports in different ways, but this, have getting to have those conversations. How did you discover there was a job where you could do? Mm. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really know about it. It wasn't until I became a personal trainer, basically at her suggestion, this was actually the same. She was like, Oh, you maybe you thought about doing personal training. I was like, no, I haven't. And so, um, and I was doing sort of personal training and mindfulness coaching. And then I started to spend a lot of time around the sort of entrepreneurial circles in Portland. And that's when I was like, Oh, there are people who just do this coach, like not just the training part who just do the coaching part. And they make a lot of money, right? And they do really well and they, you know, and really enjoy it. And um, so I, I kind of found out about, about it like that. I didn't actually think I could do it. And I remember meeting with my first coach, my first marketing coach. And she was like, well, do you want to be a trainer or a coach? And I was like, oh, I really want to be a coach. So that was sort of the, the moment was like in our like, you know, one day VIP where I was like, I have to choose. Do I want to be a trainer or a coach? And I said, well, I really want to be a coach. And so yeah, I sort of was nascently aware of it before that, but it wasn't really until I got, got into the entrepreneurial personal development scene that I was aware that this was really something people did for a living. That was something other than a joke, right? I heard it on like, you know, reality TV, like, oh, it's a life coach. I'd be like, oh, that person's wacky. And yeah. Yeah, there's a great bit. I don't know. Did, did, has Peep Show made it over to the States? Have you come across that? It's a, it's a quite good, it's quite good. It's like... Um bit influenced by the office uh, okay you know the ricky gervais original one you know which obviously sure. has been taken and run with brilliantly by this by the american version but the original one is amazing though it's a great it's yeah it's got more of the kind of really horrible cringe stuff and peep show is is this kind of about these two flatmates it's all point of view shot and they get into all obviously lots of scrapes and in one bit of it jez who's one of these guys trains to be a life coach by doing like hmm. um but he doesn't actually do it. He just goes to the first bit, fakes a certificate, and then uses it to have sex with somebody. So like that's, nice. the, I sometimes think that's Perfect. Like the, yeah. the people's introduction to coaching. Yeah. Um, and, okay. And so you had this thought and then what happens, what happened next after that conversation with the marketing coach? What did you, you got the sense that I could be having conversations like that all the time. Actually, that's the bit mm. that I'm interested in. What did you do with that? 
Well, I mean, you know, I, uh, I've been doing my personal training business for about six months when I hired her. And I was just, I'm, I was like a lot of new coaches. I was like, like, I don't, I'm making a little bit of money, but this doesn't really seem viable. And how the hell am I going to do this? And how am I going to pay rent? And so I was really looking for somebody who just had the answers. And she presented as like, oh, I have the answers. I will tell you what to do. And so, you know, her whole thing was like, you need an ultimate result, which is sort of another version of saying a niche and ideal client. And so she's like, well, you got to pick a niche. You got to pick an ideal client. I was like, all right, fine. That's, you know, she has all the answers. I should just do that. So what was my, my ultimate result was mindfulness and happiness. That was my ultimate result. And I went full into it. So I created a 30 day mindfulness and happiness challenge. She was always pushing me to like, go get coaching conversations. And she had a very specific, you know, 30 minute script of this is how you sell coaching. And this is, you know, you pull all their pain and then you, you know, tell them you can help them and you get the credit card on the phone. It was very much like that kind of thing. And I was like, all right, well, she, she seems successful. I'll do what she says. And uh, so I, I did this 30 day mindfulness and happiness challenge. I had 150 people sign up, which was awesome. Um, I'd been writing a blog at that point, And so I had, you know, somewhat of a Facebook following. And this was sort of early in the days of Facebook challenges. There weren't a lot of people doing that. Yeah. Roughly when is this? Just so that uh, I'm so bad understanding time. 2000 and I don't know, 15, 2016, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. About four or five years ago. So um, I did this challenge. I got everyone to sign up. I gave away coaching sessions to everybody. I told people I was only giving away coaching sessions to 10 people, but I gave away to everybody, right? So I got to create this illusion of limitation. And, uh, and then I started having, I had 75 people took me up on it. I started having coaching conversations. I realized 10 sessions in, I didn't want to talk to any of the people that had signed up. Um, I, looking back on it, I realized later that like when you, happiness is a great thing to talk about, but when you put out the idea of like achieving happiness into the world, people that are attracted to it are people who are fundamentally very unhappy right? Successful people, people who are leaders, they may not actually be happy, but they're pretty good at like pushing it down underneath work or distractions. The people who like have happiness at the center of their desire are like quite, quite miserable and depressed and anxious, right? So, um, so when I, I ended up talking to like 75, most of them were pretty depressed, lost, anxious people, um, which was amazing training as a coach, right? Like, you know, I could not have asked for a more powerful set of conversations to teach me how to be with people and how to be patient and trusting, right? It's an amazing training as a coach. But um, I was just like, there's, I can't go to these people. They don't have any money. They don't, you know, their ability to do anything is incredibly limited. Um, they, most of them needed therapy, not coaching. And uh, I remember I was sitting, I was felt really lost. I went to sit Zazen at uh, a temple and I just had this realization. I was like, oh, I'm just doing everything wrong, right? Which was, it was honestly a relief to be like, right, I'm just doing, this is all wrong. Like I just, I have to kind of go back and rethink everything from the beginning. So I fired my marketing coach <laughs> or I think we didn't complete. I was like, I'm just not going to renew. Would you try to get me renewed? And I was like, nope, not going to renew with you. And then somebody recommended that I read the prosperous coach, right? Which is sort of like how many stories of great successful coaches began with someone told <laughs> me to read the prosperous coach and the simplicity of it and the the power of it and the oh right you can just build a coaching business by building relationships um really struck me and and had me be present to a lot of possibility so i hired i joined a group program with jason goldberg uh who was he's like a sort of steve chandler he worked a lot with steve and then um even before his program started, he would just like tell me to do stuff. And I was like, great, I'll just do that. And basically I just broke down the prosperous coach into a series of practices of like, okay, 
there's connect. I just need to get really, really good at connecting. And so I just would like set up phone calls and just how can I get really good at connecting? And then, okay, good. Now I'm doing a lot of connecting. How can I get really good at inviting? So I sort of broke it down piecemeal, step by step until I sort of had trained myself on all the little disciplines that lead to getting clients. And then somehow by doing that, I don't know, a year later, um, I had like a six-figure coaching business. <laughs> you know, and, and people would be like, well, how did you do that? I'm like, I don't know. I read the same book you did. I, you know, I just created it. So um, yeah, so that's a little bit of my story. I do realize I kind of yada, yada, yada over the part probably everyone wants to know about, but... Wait, which, which bit do you think that is? Yeah, the part where I like just started doing it and then I made $100,000. People okay, are like, yeah. 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 We, we, we probably need to talk about that. But, <laughs> but before we do that, I want to just slow down. I guess there were two things that stood out and I, I don't know if they're related. I'm just, so I'm just going to throw them at you, but they might not. One is the, you said something like the meditation was the first thing that, the first time other than perhaps smoking pot that you felt like your mind had really slowed down. Mm. And for some reason that has, feels like it has some connection to this moment where you realize you're doing everything wrong. Maybe that just was another moment where everything slowed down. Mm. But I just wonder what part has that piece about slowing the mind down played I guess in your story more broadly is what is what comes up as a question than the coaching story, but it, it just really stood out. And before we move into dive into the detail of coaching, I want to ask about that. Sure. So one of my essence words is brilliance and anyone who has the essence of brilliance. Wait, um, well, yeah. It, what do you mean by essence words? What's to, Oh, right. Okay. Well, we'll do a 20 minute side jot into ontology. Uh, um, ah, okay. Okay. So, uh, in this, in this theory of ontology or ontological coaching, of which I am probably a poor spokesman of, the idea is that we're all born with an essence, right? So it's sort of like a bright light that we're just born with. And you see this in kids. I remember being a preschool teacher, like certain kids, they just have a certain essence and they're, they're, they're not the same, right? Um, you know, some kids are a bit more angry and broody and some of them just seem super happy and some sort of caught in drama and some are really creative and so the idea behind ontology is each of us is born with a particular kind of essence. And then what happens is, is that because living in your essence is hard and threatening to other people, like we often are quite uncomfortable with other people's essences, we develop what are called survival mechanisms to adapt for our essence. And typically we um, adapt to our essence in one of two ways. So either we double down on it. So people who are brilliant become super high achievers, they make straight A's, they like, you know, get to the best colleges, they have the best jobs. Often they're quite miserable and disconnected, but they, you know, they have this amazing life that looks great on the outside. The other way people deal with brilliance is that they like do a thing to kind of sabotage it so they can like get out of the pressure of it. Um, my sister is more of the former type. She's a straight A student, went to Wharton Business School, has an MBA from Duke, works at this fancy company. I was the latter, right? Which is that I sort of pushed it away and try to like under uh, downplay, right? So I felt like my mind was a burden in a, in, a, in a way. And so I think for me, most of my 20s was just sort of like feeling this sense of pressure that I was supposed to do something meaningful with my life. Um, like I remember growing up, people like, oh, you've got so much potential. And it would just piss me off. Like, and at the time, I would sort of be like, well, how do you know? And like, what I realize now is like, it pissed me off because it put this pressure on me. Like I had to like, you know, I was 13, I'm supposed to make something in my life and like, supposed to be doing something great. And like, you know, it, it just felt like a lot to carry. 
And so most of my 20s was just sort of like, how do I underachieve enough so that like I can get this burden off of me? And it wasn't until I got to the monastery, I was like, oh, right. Like the burden's not going anywhere. This is sort of one of the gifts that life has given me. And I get to decide what I want to do with it, right? I can, I mean, I, you know, smoke pot for 10 years. It didn't go anywhere. I've worked my ass off, you know, for the 10 years since then. And it still hasn't gone anywhere, but my relationship to it is different. So anyway, um, your essence is just who you are naturally. It's at your, at your fundamental nature. And it's actually who you are when you don't even realize that you're being it and you kind of can't not be it. You can adapt to it and try to hide it, but it just is who you are. And so there's an exercise I do with my clients um, that I got from Hans Phillips and they also use an accomplishment coaching which is called an essence exercise. We actually do a series of interviews and you collect these responses and then you identify five to six words that are, well, five words technically that are your essence. And so my essence words are brilliance, integrity, commitment, passion, play, and adventure. So those are my six words. So if you've known me any part of time in my life, you've probably experienced some level of my essence. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And so that then, just to bring us back into that, that sense of, of slowing the mind down, of having, yeah. I guess, of having a mind that can go fast and that can go slow. I don't know if, that's, if that feels like, if that, is that a thing that's been integrated or was it actually that, that slowing the mind down is where the, the magic started to happen? Well, I think for me, marijuana did slow my mind down, brought me more deeply into an experience of life. The way I would describe meditation, and I'm present that it may sound a bit obtuse, is that meditation is about finding the stillness at the center of everything, but it's not like you have to slow down to get there. It just is, is and always is still. Yeah. I feel like that's one way we could go in this conversation now, and it's kind of tempting I guess the bit that comes up is I'm wondering, and at some point we will probably will have to go back to how did you get to the six figure bit. But before we do that, it's, it's you know, I guess certainly the way you told the story, mm. but it, you know, it may not feel as much like that, but those two and a half years in that monastery sound significant. And I guess I'm curious as you look back on that now, you know, and since then you've moved on, you're in this, you know, we'll talk a little bit about where your work is now and what you're working on. But there's low, I even, I know, you know, without being intimately connected with you, that there's a lot of interesting things happening. And mm. uh, it certainly feels like you're doing some powerful and important work. Um, what part has those two and a half years and the, the, must have, the changes as well as the insights that must have come over that played since then? I always really struggle to answer this question. I also yeah. it, might, it might be just it's, it might, it's kind of a weird question, isn't it? And it might be just like no, it's not a weird trying question. to simplify something that is yeah, yeah, too yeah. Complex, no, let me try. Yeah, let me try. Let me try. I love. I mean, I want every time I ask it, I always like, oh, there's an opportunity to answer this question in a new way. <laughs> Such a very coachy of me. Um, yeah, it is hard to answer because, like, how do you describe two and a half years of any part of life, and especially a two and a half years of like deeply powerful transformational work? I mean, to me, coaching is essentially meditation. At its best, you're sitting in complete stillness with another person and allowing the answers just arrive, right? The questions arise from nothing, get asked by no one and are answered by no one from nothing. And so like at its most potent, coaching is a live active meditation. And, you know, for me, like when I'm doing my real work as a coach, like I'm literally meditating with the client. Um, and often when I, you know, get off of that and stop meditating and get attached to a particular agenda or line of thinking, th that can also 
you know, sometimes it's good coaching, but often it's a bit light and pushy and not so much fun for either one of us. So, I mean, if nothing else, the two years in the monastery trained my ability to just like, to one, be with myself and all of my emotions. And I'm an incredibly emotional human being, really wide ranging emotions, but it also trained me to really be with other people. And I think that that's often the biggest challenge I see when I work with coaches. You know, I have this thing called the coaching dojo and I teach coaches about coaching is that a client will bring up something that's difficult and the coach's ability just to sit with it and not to change it or shift it or fix it is, is almost the single most important determination of how good they are as a coach. And a coach who can really just, just sit with a person and not have to do anything is able to then, from that place of stillness, ask a question or a reflection that's really, really powerful. So, I, I mean, I can't, I can't actually imagine a better training to be a coach than living in a monastery for two years. Like it is like the ultimate training in being with someone. Um, and then also the monastery trained me in personal development because they had a lot of workshops on mindfulness and nonviolent communication and voice dialogue. And so a lot of the early material I use as a coach, I got from those experiences. So it impacted me both in this, the spiritual way in which I am as a coach, as well as some of the fundamental principles I use in my coaching. Yeah. And that's a, I think those are two great, there's a great distinction as well, because in some mm -hmm. ways that's, you know, sometimes I, I think you've talked about that beautifully. And I think a problem that uh, coaches sometimes run into is they think only the second one of those things matters. Like I need more, I need more awareness of ways to work. And I think actually, you know, I, I really felt what you were saying then. And if people can really sit, if people have got that ability to do that, then, well, then everything is really different. And certainly it felt like a, a step change in my work was when I essentially started practicing that Yeah, in different ways. What happens if I just let go in those moments and we're, you know, as close as possible, um, just in tune. Yeah. That can also be a bit of a dead end. I mean, it's interesting. I feel like, so it's like, I, I've watched enough new coaches now, like there's a very predictable journey. So like, the first thing is like, it's all about the techniques and the answers. Like, okay, I got to do a life wheel. I'm not going to ask them these questions. And okay, I'm going to design a strategy and hold them accountable. So that's like kind of stage one. And then stage two, they discover like three Ps or Rich Litvin. And they're like, oh, I just need to like sit in the stillness with my client, man. And like the answers just come to, it's like some weird <laughs> hippy dippy. And then they, some coaches kind of get just stopped there, right? And so it's interesting to watch coaches evolve because they'll be like, it's all structural. They're not present at all. And then it's just like no structure, and which is great, can work, right? But like those conversations can also just like go nowhere and just have no direction. And then like you're just sitting with a client and like it feels kind of cool, but you're not actually doing anything. It's sort of coaching that just only has insight, but no commitment or action. And ultimately, you know, the place to get to is a place where there's actually no difference between those two things. The way I describe it in my coaching is that as I'm coaching, I always coach from the Buddha, but I've got this guy named Klaus who lives in my head. And Klaus is like, he has all the tools and techniques of which I have an innumerable amount of like this tool and this technique and this NLP exercise and this thing. And so the Buddha is sitting there in the stillness with the client and, and noticing what needs to be. And then every now and again, the Buddha says, Klaus, I need this thing. And Klaus, you know, rustles around in his overbuilt workshop and like grabs the thing that's disorganized and then hands it to the Buddha and then the Buddha uses it. And so it's not, for me, the ultimate coaching is not either pure technique or pure awareness, 
but technique that arises naturally from awareness. It's this beautiful integration of the two. And the world's best coaches, they don't draw these lines of distinction between, am I going to hold them accountable or not? It's just, am I holding them accountable because that's what coaches are supposed to do when I have to hold them accountable? Or am I holding them accountable because that's what stillness is calling for in this moment? Yeah. And I was, it's interesting that you've brought that in. I'm curious about Klaus. So in Klaus and the Buddha, it, when you're in an enrollment conversation, what is, is Klaus playing the part of the structure of that as well? Or is there someone else who's there doing that? Because when you were talking about being in relationship with people and, and that meditative practice, yeah, the, the, the thought came into my mind, well, where does the structure of all that stuff that you learned when you were identifying how to, you know, getting really good at the prosperous coach approach and then applying it and thinking about what you were going to bring to it and all those things, that learning must feed into those conversations too. So it's, it's like, is it Klaus bringing that or is it someone different? Yes, yeah, so it is Klaus. I mean, the distinction I draw, <laughs> the distinction I draw in enrollment is a bit different. And so uh, the other, the other, I like to draw these distinctions though. So, when really powerful spiritual enrollment, you're holding two sides. So one is what I call the hunter and the other is what I call the monk. And so they're just different versions of Klaus and the Buddha really, right? <laughs> so the monk is sitting completely unattached sees completely the emptiness of giver, receiver, and gift, knows that the client's life will be great if they hire you or not, know that your life will be great if the client hires you or not. And then there's this other part that's the hunter. And the hunter has a very particular agenda, which is like, I need to get this person to pay me because I have to pay rent, right? I need to kill this deer so I can eat, which is just true, right? There's all this weird like language in the realm of coaching of like, either it's like, the client owes you this and it's very adversarial and you need to get their money out of their po- your money out of their pocket into your wallet, right? It's this weird thing. Or it's this other weird thing where it's, and the prosperous coach is a little bit of this too, where it sort of subjugates the hunter and sort of like, well, that's just bad and you should ignore it. And if you're just still and present with people, they will pay you. And like, that's sort of true. It can work, but often it's sort of limited. And, and both are sort of not fully integrated perspectives on sales. So when I'm selling, there is a part of me that's completely unattached, that's totally okay if they say yes or no. And there's a part of me that's like really clear that I want them to pay me money because I need to pay rent and that them making a commitment to coaching is really meaningful to them, right? And maybe that's a bit at the nexus of like, for me, sales is about coaching someone in order to make a commitment. And so coaches just say, well, I don't like to do sales. I'm bad at sales. I'm basically saying like, look, you're stopping your coaching of the ability to create a commitment with the client. All you can do is sort of sit with them and poke at them and sort of hold them accountable. If you cannot support a client to make a commitment, which brings up their fear, their resistance, their doubt, their uncertainty of themselves and the person they're working with, then you're not really a powerful coach because that is one of the most important things you can do as a coach is support a client to make a powerful commitment. And that's all sales is. Sales is just supporting a client to make a powerful commitment, either to, yes, hiring me as a coach or no hiring someone else as a coach or, or paying money to their kid's college fund. If you can support them, make that commitment powerfully and feel empowered in the process, like there's almost nothing more important you can do as a coach. And uh, you know, maybe this is the time to move into that now, because I know you're working on, um, on a book on sales at the moment. And I think, you know, it's worth us slowing right down on that piece you just said, because I think there's a lot in there and I think it's really important. It feels important. Mm. Um, you know, that, and I wonder if you could just, yeah, slow down on it a bit more, speak a little bit more to that sense that, and maybe a little bit about how this would play out 
with a client, if that feels like the right way to do it, but whatever feels like the right way, this sense that the sales process is at its deepest, purest level, I think is what you're saying, about supporting people to make a commitment, mm. like a really important commitment. Mm. And that commitment can be paying you X thousand dollars for Y months or whatever it is, or it can be something different. Yeah. But that, that in itself, you know, and I've seen this with clients too. It's like, you know, you know, it's an extraordinary thing for some people to put their money on them mm-hmm. in all kinds of ways. And, and that can be a beautiful thing to see. But I think, yeah, if you wouldn't mind slowing down on that and yeah. speaking to it a little bit more with whatever comes up really. And the thing that comes up is the story where I kind of realized the importance of it. So mm. I was enrolling this woman, she was from the UK actually. And I'd spent, you know, four hours on the phone with her talking at this point. Right. And, and I was very much at this point, like, I just want to do the coaching. I mean, that's how so many coaches are like, why do I have to sell? If I just coach them well enough, they should just see how good it is and they should just pay me. Right. Why is it so hard? Right. And I kind of felt the same way about sales that a lot of people feel. It's icky and pushy and pressury, and I don't want to be that way. And so I remember talking to her and we got, she, I offered her the coaching and then she got all squirrely. Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure I can afford it. And, and I remember the feeling of despair. Like I can remember the, the bodily sensation of like, oh, fuck, it's happening again. And I'm going to lose this client and all of the like cascade of like, I'm never going to be successful as a coach. And what did I do wrong? And, you know, just all of that came and showed up. And then for a moment, I just kind of slowed down because I had more time. Often, you know, I would wait till the end of a two hour call to propose coaching and then have 10 minutes to like handle anything they were upset about. And instead, I just slowed down and I just like, okay, well, I'm just going to be a coach now. Like, I'm just going to choose back into being a coach because what else am I going to do? And I started to realize that the things that she had begun talking about when we, when I put money on the table and said, hey, I want you to pay me this amount of money. This was the stuff that was actually in her way. Like in some ways, like the four hours before, like it was just prelude to this, right? Because we all, I mean, all the stuff we talk about with coaches, like we've talked about it hundreds or thousands of times before, right? So like my thing I talk to every coach about is like, I create life as struggle, right? It's, it's, I would, if you give me a path of ease and comfort and things working out and a path of struggle, I will choose the path of struggle every time and even if I pick the easy path, I will find a way to make it hard, right? It's just, I'm super predictable to do that. And I can talk about that a lot, but if I don't make a commitment to actually working on it, it's meaningless, right? I feel a little bit better. I have a little bit of an insight and then I go back to my regular, my regular life, right? It would be almost like going on a date with an amazing woman or an amazing man or amazing person of indiscriminate gender and like having an amazing time and then getting to the point of like, I really want to ask them to marry me and then just like not doing it. Just like, whatever, I'll go date again, right? It has that level of quality to it. And so I realized in that conversation, I was like, oh, if I can support her through this, this is the thing that will have her life change. Not talking about her problems, not having her have insights, helping her actually make a commitment to put her time, attention, money, and energy on working on this project, on this thing that's holding her back. That's the thing will make a difference. And I got into coaching to change people's lives, not to like have a bunch of intellectually masturbatory conversations about difficulty. I want people to change and people will not change unless they make a commitment, unless they put something meaningful on the line. And that's what sales is about, right? Sales is about being in the conversation with someone you say, I'm going to put something on the line. I'm going to put 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, $100,000 on the line, 
right? I'm going to put my time and attention. I'm going to put my trust in you to actually work on this thing that's been holding me back for years and years and years. And it feels impossible, man. Like that is the coaching conversation, right? That is the most important conversation you can have with somebody. And so I realized if, if I can learn to master this and be present with and be attentive to it, then I can actually do what I came to coaching for, which is change people's lives. And if I avoid it and pretend that it's crap and, and create it with the same cynicism and resignation that everyone else does, I'm screwed, right? Like I'm always going to be limited by my ability to relate to this conversation powerfully. And so ever since then, I just, I, I just decided I was going to fall in love with sales and learn the incident out of it and, and bring a level of honor to it that I saw so few people in the world bringing to it. Because it is not only an important conversation, it's an incredibly honorable conversation. Yeah. So like, can you bring that to life? The honor mm. in sales? I mean, I think you have to start with that there's a, we have a societal racket on sales, right? So there's a way in which we create sales as being pushy, pressury, icky, funky, manipulative, right? We just, and, and then we just like judge the crap out of all salespeople. Like, oh, they're just these sleazy people. And the truth is like everything you've ever bought, you've interacted with a salesperson. So, you know, we have this negative bias of like, there are people who have manipulated us into buying things because there's a psychology to sale that you can, you can, I mean, you can use it for evil, just like coaching, right? Like the guy, right? You can use coaching to sleep with women. Like, I'm sure there's a way to do it. I've never <laughs> tried to do it before, but like, I'm sure there's a way to do it, right? So any technology that has any power, you can use it to mess with people. So it's understanding that like, yes, it's, it's sort of a neutral technology that we sort of painted bad. So we got to start with that. Like that's, that's the existing societal conversation around sales. It's icky, pressury, pushy, negative, right? So then if we notice that, and then obviously what do we get? So what do we, you know, with any racket, what are we getting out of it? So what we get out of it is we don't actually have to relate to it powerfully. We get to judge people who do it badly. We get to be right about being pure, or better, or like I'm such a pure coach and I don't do any of that sales stuff. And I'm better than all the marketing salesy coaches out there who, by the way, are making all the money that I want to be making. And I'm actually secretly jealous of. I get to be better than them because it's a nice sell for me to feel while I'm broke and calling myself a coach, right? So we, let's just start with like, that's the conversation we have. It's a little bit righteous, a little bit holier than thou, right? So nor, I, I, I was that way too, right? 100%. So then if we, if we notice that and like actually realize like, oh, we actually have a super disempowered relationship to sales, right? And that we don't have to accept other people's stories about sales. And as coaches, like this is like the fundamental thing we teach, right? Limiting beliefs and the way we relate to problems. And so, yeah, that's how we are about sales. Like that's our disempowered relationship to it. So then we can step back and say, well, how do I want to relate to sales? How would I like to create it? And what is possible is that even if the client says no, because the way that most people experience sales is the way we experience sales, which is it's disempowering. We're a bit of a victim. We don't like the pressure. We want to get out of the way of it, right? And so we use, we use all the excuses our clients use. I'm too busy. I don't have time, right? We relate to it as like, I have to avoid it. I don't want to upset you. I kind of want to please you. I want to say no, but I don't feel comfortable saying no, right? That's their, actually, their, that's their relationship to sale. And more importantly, that's actually the relationship to most commitments they have in life. All of the stuff they have around like cold feet and, and choosing a new job. And, you know, most people live lives of quiet desperation because to change would be to make a commitment that's in violation of all of the rules that they relate to life in. And so sales is just a little microcosm of that. And so if we can be with someone, have them an experience of, I want this thing. Something's in the way of that. I've got to put something on the line to get there. 
And I'm super afraid to do that. I'm super nervous about it. And all my fear comes up. If we can walk them through that process and at the other end of it, whether they choose yes or no, have themselves experience, experience their lives and their selves of, I took on this commitment. I was present with the fear. I made a choice. And that choice is my choice, not out of fear or trepidation or I can't do it, but a choice that's like, this is what I am choosing. I am choosing powerfully then people can have this a deeply empowered experience of their lives, even if they say no. I remember a conversation I had with a guy who we were talking about the money and I was like, oh, it sounds like you have competing commitments. And he started talking about his kid's college fund and how important it was to pay for college for his son and why it meant so much to him. And I just got really clear like, oh, this guy is actually more committed to his college fund than coaching. And I could have had the conversation of like, oh, you can go to create the money and get a new job, right? But what he was actually getting clear on was like, oh, this is actually my priority. And so I just reflected that back to him. I said, hey, man, it sounds like you're really committed to this. And I feel your passion around it. And it sounds like for you right now at your place in your life, that commitment is more important than coaching. And so I want you to be really clear that you're saying no to coaching, not because you can't afford it or not because you don't think it's going to work. You're saying no to coaching because you are a stand for sending your child to college. And that is a beautiful stand. And he thanked me. Right. And can you imagine that like a sales conversation? First of all, people thank me for selling to them, which is crazy. A sales conversation where the person says no, both people leave feeling good, and the client in saying no feels more powerful than when they got in the conversation. When is a time ever in your life where you've had a conversation like that, much less a sales conversation? So that's what's really possible in sales to do that kind of no, it doesn't always work out like that, but that's what's really possible. And there's, you know, there's a load of stuff we could jump off on that. I guess the place that it feels, you know, this is perhaps the, the obvious question, given the context of where we're having this conversation, right, which is a podcast for coaches, is, and you, you know, we might talk about that later on. You've mentioned it already, Samurai Coaching Dojo, the work you do with coaches. So you've, I know that you've taken this and helped other people look at this. And obviously you're working on the book, but for a coach who's listening, who is you know, either stuck in that story of sales that so many of us, me too, right, have or have had, um, or is coming to realize that there's something slightly missing in, in just the way that they're approaching sales. And you know, I think for a lot of people, the idea that the idea of bringing the, a word like honor to sales feels quite alien, but would have a, a, a pull to it, right? Mm. Where do people start? Or where, where do you suggest people start? Well, so first of all, I guess I guess the place to start is just to notice how disempowered you are in sales. And and it becomes this sort of unquestioned story, right? And we're all this way, right? We like as coaches, we question all of our stories. And then there's one little story that we don't want anybody to poke, <laughs> right? That like we don't want to look at, right? We're like, I don't want to look at that story. That's my that one's true. Right. This little piece of is over here. This is true. Don't mess with that one. Right. And then of course, you know, you work and that it changes or shifts or gets smaller, right? So I guess I would start with like, hey, like just be really honest with yourself about how disempowered you are around sales and how you created it is so funky. And that it's actually, it's no different than any of the rest of that stuff, right? Um, it's heavier because we have such a strong cultural conversation around it. And, you know, we all have the caricature of the used car salesman. Like I've been doing interviews for my book and like, they're like, oh yeah, I don't want to sell like a used car salesman. You know, they're a used car salesman. They're really nice. They're really good at selling cars and to help people get a car they can afford. That's really great. And they're super pushy used car salesmen, right? So it's, it's a cultural meme in a way. So I guess I would start there. And then the second place to start is 
stop holding your nose through the sales conversation. Stop dreading it when it comes up and then holding your nose to the end of it. I would put, can you put the same kind of attention, care, and awareness to who you're being in the sales conversation as you put to who you're being as a coach? So flip your attention, right? Because most coaches start with, well, I just want all my attention on the coaching part. And I don't want to, or like, I'm going to do the sales part, but I'm just going to follow a script because it's sort of, I have to follow a script. But if you can put the same care, attention, and love on how you're being with the client as you sell to them, as how you're being with them as coaching, that alone will like just completely shift the way you relate to it. Because coaches are amazing in that they're very reliable to slow down and be attentive and be caring and be loving. And if you can bring that same kind of attention to sales, then like, yeah, you can, you can transform your relationship to it. And so, it, it, you know, it's interesting because, you, you know, you made that kind of reference to how you used to be with the 10 minutes at the end for sales um, at the end of the four hours or whatever. Talk me through, I, I get that this isn't, this, you know, by, by asking the question I'm, uh, you know, that I'm about to ask, I'm, you know, I'm aware of the irony of it because it, it, it's against what we're talking about in this moment and what we've been talking about most of this conversation. But to give people a real feel for that enrollment process where as much of you and as much attention is given to the sales part as the coaching part, what does your enrollment process look like or, or feel like now? And maybe if, if it's useful, sorry, just to catch it if, it, if this isn't too much of an interruption to give us a little sense of the, of what your practice looks like now before going into that. So who are the people that you're having these conversations with and, and that kind of thing. So that, that makes sense. Cause it, you know, there's something different about an enrollment process for a business, which is uh, 60 clients at once versus one that's four clients at once and, and how that can look. And so just so that people have got an idea sure. of that as well. So typically I have between six and 10 clients. I run a couple of group programs a year. So uh, the coaching dojo we now run in the springtime, primarily I used to run it twice a year. I think we're going to keep it just in the spring. And then I'm, I'm putting together another small group coaching program, which I haven't come up with a name with yet, but it's sort of like a, a coaching mastermind for new coaches um, to really co help coaches like build their coaching business or rejuvenate their coaching business. So I have enrollment conversations that are both for clients that are paying me anywhere from 25,000 to, you know, 90,000, $100,000 a year, as well as conversations where people are paying me, you know, four or $5,000, right? Um, and they are different. I spend more time with the people who are going to pay me $50,000 than the people who are going to pay me, you know, 4,000, but the structure of, and just, I just, yeah, it speaks to the, like, you're kind of laughing about that, but speak to the, the importance of that. Cause I think it is different. Yeah. That, that there is a different quality. And I know, you know, I don't tend to operate at that, at that as high a level as you are with the of money, but I notice it even when you, for me, it felt, it felt started to feel different when I got above about, I don't know, 1500, 2000 pounds. I can't do the conversion rate at the moment, yeah. but well, I don't know what it is. But it's like that suddenly, even at that point, to the to the next bit up, there's a different quality to the conversation. So, what's different and what's important about? It's not just that they're paying you less, is is what I guess I'm getting at. Although it might partly be that. Well, on one level, it's just a matter of survival. Uh, you know, if I enroll 24 people in the dojo and spend four hours with each of them, that's an enormous amount of time, and um, that's how I originally enrolled the dojo. I spent two hours with every person. And I almost completely killed myself. Like I was so burnt out, right? I and mean, there was a time period where like the prosperous coach methodology as great as it is, will just eat away every moment of free time on your calendar. And you know, it's great for a boutique coaching practice where you only have five clients, but if you're trying to enroll in group programs, spending four hours with each of them while wonderful, 
is really hard. You know, it got me to the place where I was making, you know, two, $250,000 a year, but like was punching, punching the wall of my office. Cause I was so stressed out. So, um, partially it's just survival. Like I just can't, if I'm going to have 24 conversations, I can't spend four hours with each person. And, you know, the truth is like, you can have a great sales conversation with somebody in an hour. It just looks different. Right. So the big difference between those two kinds of conversations is in the one-on-one conversation, and this is just the way I do it, you are creating something for the client that they want, right? So the thing about coaching is coaching is a bit of an empty box, right? Which you can put anything you want in it, put anything in the way of the thing you want in it, and then you can work on it. There's sort of nothing that's in the round of coaching. And so when you're selling one-on-one, you have this amazing ability of like, you don't have to create the product until the, the client's basically creating the product they want to buy, which by the way, the client only ever buys what they want to buy, not what you're selling, but I guess that's a whole other podcast. So, so when I'm doing one-on-one coaching, you know, I'm connecting with the person, creating my being with them. I'm then spending probably an hour or two, more an hour now, just coaching them and having them get present to the possibility of coaching and what's available and also what it's like to be with me. And also, do I want to work with them? Because are they annoying or not? Because some people are super annoying. Sometimes I work with annoying clients, but I generally don't choose those clients to work with. How do you tell the people that they're that you don't want to work with them and that they're annoying? You just refer them to another coach. I don't really tell people they're annoying. I mean, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was, yeah, I was joking. There's about nothing. That, there's nothing that they're doing that's annoying. I'm just annoyed by them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's worth. I think it's worth flagging. One of the things. A great bit of advice I got from one of my coaches was, you know, it's like the answers to all those questions are almost always set the right scene at the start to a certain extent to prepare it. And for me, it was. Yeah, just understand and this and make and then make this true that you have a commitment. I have a commitment to if if I meet someone and I believe there's someone out there who might support them better, that I'll tell them. That. Yeah. And if I tell them that at the start, then if it gets to that moment where I'm like, this person's super annoying, uh, therefore there's almost certainly someone out there who can serve them better, then that becomes an easy yeah. conversation. I have also had the experience of working with clients who are super annoying and then saying I'm never gonna work with them again and then work with them a year later and having it be great. <laughs> Because a lot of it is I've become more, less and less attached to coaching going the particular way that I want it to go. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a client who I worked with um, a couple of years ago and I, I worked with them, but I was just like, they drove me crazy the whole time. I'm like, I'd never work with person again. They came back to me to do some work with me. And we had probably one of the most lovely coaching relationships we ever, we ever had. Now they still did a lot of stuff that annoyed me, but it just didn't bother me as much. The only way I can explain it. Cause I was less attached to how it was going to go. Um, that's a bit of a digression. So, um, what were we, what were we talking about? <laughs> We've got a, we're, I think we're on like a, a, a branch of a branch of a branch right now, but it's all tangents we were all the at, way down. It's all yeah. tangents, Robbie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what we were at was, um, what is your enrollment process look yeah. like? And then we were in the space of there's a difference between the one, the conversations with people who enroll in groups and when it's four or $5,000 and the people where it might be up to, you know, $90,000 or more Yeah. and the time you might spend with them. And it start. I think you said it starts with a, a with the, with the one-on-one clients. It's, so yeah, yeah, I do like a 20 to 30 minute connection call where I literally just connect with them and just who are they, who are they and how are they and what do they want to know about my story and tell me a little bit about yours. It's very human, no agenda. And then from there, if I feel like, oh, this is juicy, there's something here, I'll say, hey, well, you know, I was great to connect with you. I feel like it might be interesting to have a coaching conversation, usually around a thing that I, we've talked about, like, oh, I think that would be interesting. Would that interest you? And, you know, they typically say yes, because I'm very charming. Um, I mean, most of them get on the call because they, they're interested in coaching anyway, right? And so um, 
So then they, I do about an hour or two hour conversation with them where again, I just create the possibility of coaching and I lay out at the beginning. I'm like, Hey, uh, if a coaching conversation is a cave, you need to give people exits. Otherwise they will break through the side of the cave and just do whatever the hell they want. So I, you know, start the coaching conversation and I say, there's three ways this conversation will end. One, you'll want to work with me. I'll want to work with you and we'll talk about it. Two, will be complete. Like this is just the conversation we need to have and, and you'll go on your way. And three will be incomplete in some way. So either that we'll need to have another conversation. There's a coach I'll recommend that you talk to. There's some work you want to do. So those are the three ways we'll end, right? So people really relax when you tell them that because they're like, okay, because they're, they're already thinking at the end of this, this guy's going to pitch me. I mean, they, they're already thinking that. They're like, I'm going to get a pitch and he's going to pressure me. And they're like girding their loins to it. They're like preparing. They're like, oh, I'm going to tell him no. And I don't have the money. And I'm going to, my wife will, you know, so they're already preparing their defensive to your sales. I mean, way, before, you know, they think that on the first conversation, probably, <laughs> right? Because this is how we relate to sales as a society. Got to prepare myself and gird myself to the sale. I mean, I, I feel that way when I go in department stores, the perfume people, I'm like, you know, practice. No, I'm not interested, right? The hand thing. And Anyway, so you, you give them that exit. And so then they know, okay, I'm not getting sold to on this call. And they relax, right? And so then you do the coaching with them. And then, you know, it ends a little different every time. Sometimes I recommend they do something, right? I can tell like they're not totally enrolled or they don't have a great context to, to do something. And so... Um, and then sometimes say, great, you know, would you want to talk about one-on-one coaching? They'll, they'll say yes or, or no. Right. And from there, I'm like, cool, great. So then we have a separate conversation, which is another hour or two hour conversation. And that whole conversation is about what do they want to get out of coaching? So the first conversation is what I would call coaching around insight. I just want them to give it, get an insight. I just want them to get present some possibility around coaching. I want them to have one experience of like, oh, my life as I knew it isn't totally how I thought just a little kind of peak, a little opening, like, oh, crap. I mean, I remember our enrollment conversation I had recently, that little opening was the guy came with like, well, I'm afraid to fail. And I, I'm afraid this business is going to fail. And the, the conversation I had with him was like, yeah, but in the area of your life where you know you can't fail, you're super bored. So like you need the risk of failure for your life to be interesting. So he went from failure is bad, I need to avoid it. It's like, oh, failure is a thing that gives my life purpose. That's a huge shift for somebody, right? But it's not everything, right? I haven't tried to fix his whole life. I'm not giving him a bunch of, oh, you should do this and hire this person. Like just a little insight. So then the second conversation, now this conversation is, is coaching around commitment, right? So the conversation, we're not, I'm not trying to have this person have an insight. Now they may have insights in the process, but I want them to feel the tension of the way their life is, right? So people fundamentally do not change unless they get present to the impact of how they're currently being. The best example I've ever seen of this is that my father who used to eat mayonnaise and potato chips, which is delicious and gross, um, you know, lots of steak and burgers. He got diagnosed with a heart condition. Overnight, he started doing yoga and became a vegan. Because when someone tells you, if you do not change your lifestyle, you're going to die, all of a sudden commitment just gets like, oh yeah, like obviously. Now, some people just go into denial and eat the hamburger anyway, but people who really care about themselves, who are present, who are willing to change, they will shift very quickly when they get present the impact of how they're being. So when you are selling to someone, you gotta, you got to have them get really clear, this is what I want that's meaningful in my life. This is what's super important to me. And then you got to have them be really clear of, this is the cost of not having that. This is the cost of how I am right now. This is what it's going to feel like in 10 years if my marriage feels meaningless. This is what it's going to feel like in five years if I stay at the same crappy job. This is what it's going to feel like in three years if I don't develop a new relationship with my son, or I don't change the strategy of my business, or I don't have employees that work for me, 
or if my coaching business doesn't grow. This is how it's going to feel. Because the truth is, we like to hide from ourselves that things are probably going to go in the future how they went in the past unless something changes. We want to believe that like, oh, it's just going to change. It'll just get better. Like we'll win the lottery. We'll meet the right person. My, I'll just hire a good employee this time, right? Um, and the truth is, they, things don't change that much, right? So you have to get them really, really present to it. And then from that place of having them be really clear what they want and having them clear on the impact of how they're currently being, then you make an offer. You say, here is a pathway of the work that we can do that will help you go from where you are now a little bit closer to where you want to be, right? Now, the trick of this is as coaches, it's all kind of bullshit, right? Because like the stuff you tell them you're going to work on, you might work on that stuff, but like you don't actually know, right? Like I have yet to meet a coach who's like, I know exactly how this person's going to change. Like people are going to throw weird defenses and the work's going to shift. And so it's a bit of a fiction, but they need something, right? They need a pathway. Because if I'm just like, oh, let's go wander in these bramble bushes for the next year, and you're going to just hate me and be miserable and think I'm tearing your life apart. But at the end of it, you're going to feel great. They're going to be like, no, I'm not doing that with you. It's crazy. So you've got to create like, okay, there's a path and I know how to get there. And like, you know, you don't really, like you might have a sense of it, but like it all unfolds moment to moment. You've got to create a path or they're not going to, they just won't buy. I mean, you wouldn't buy that. No one's going to buy Let's go, you know, I might buy it. Most people aren't going to buy. Let's go tumble on brambles for a year. So you create that path for them, and then you put something on the line. You draw a line and say, and say, okay, for you to take this path on, here's what's here's what's required. And again, in some ways, what's required is completely made up, but it needs to be significant enough for them so that they feel the pain of doing it, right? So that's the conversation I have with them. That's the proposed conversation. And then depending on where they're at, I will have another series of conversations, which I call in the realm of coaching beyond yes or no which is that we're just dealing with then their resistances, their doubts, their fears about wanting the commitment. Now, the difference between this and a traditional sales process is that in a traditional sales process, you're holding that the right answer is that they make the commitment. You're holding that they're dumb and stupid. And that it doesn't, if they, they may not, they might think they don't want it, but they actually want it and they should buy it. Cause you know, best, cause you're the salesperson and you know, and you know, and I'm just thinking about my commission, right? So you, that's traditional sales. The difference in this particular sales conversation is, you're really only following their desire. So it only works if they really want the thing that they have created. They really want, they are really present to the impact, not that you made up, but that they actually feel about their lives. And they want to get there, but they're scared. They have doubts. They're not sure it's going to be worth it. They're not sure it's going to work. And you support them to work through those doubts. It's not traditional sales is you versus the client's doubts, fears, objections, resistances. This is you and the client together against their doubts, fears, and desires, right? So you're, you're sitting with them and saying, hey, you want this thing. You want to run this marathon. There's 26 miles be- between the beginning and the end of this and a little bit more. All right, let's run it together. Let's see what it's actually going to take to get you from here to there. And they may not want to run with you, right? But you're, you're standing with them. You're on their side looking at what's possible, not against them trying to push through their objections and resistances. That perhaps is the most important distinction between dishonorable and honorable sales. Mm. Hmm. Looking forward to the book. <laughs> then, I, then I'll get a chance to double click on any of these, any of these little bits. Yeah. Um, okay. First of all, it sounds like there's two things that you are creating possibly for the client and, you know, or just, and, you know, possibly coming from a more broad set that you have for your business and the ways that you like to work. Mm. One is the path you might go on with someone. 
and one is what is required of them. Mm. And I just wondered if you could speak to how you create those things and what they look like, and then it would be great to slow down a bit on how you bridge into the coaching beyond yes or no. Because I think that those moments of like, especially because, okay, I'm talking about it now, so who knows where we go next. Um, you know, it's like everyone's kind of like geared up for the, like you say, girding the loins for the sales conversation. Mm-hmm. Then it happens and the coach and or probably definitely the client is a bit like, okay, I'm going to have to say yes or no. Lots of people struggle with that moment too. So to to hold that skillfully for the client, it, to enable those conversations after to happen sounds really interesting to me and I'm curious to hear a bit more about that too. Mm-hmm. So you, you decide where we go now. Uh, yeah. After that, after that speech marks yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like there's four <laughs> questions in there. Uh, one question at a time, coach, come on. Um, <laughs> which is great advice for any coach. See if you can ask one question at a time. Coaches love to ask. Yes. Well, that's why, that's why I like doing podcasting because I'm allowed to do whatever I like. <laughs> yeah, I love it, man. Uh, I love it. Yeah. I use creating possibility. Um, okay. How I do it is hard to explain. I mean, there is sort of a, like, I just sort in my head out what are the most important you know, benefits the client really wants. And I sort them very quickly. I mean, unfortunately, this is a difficult thing for me to teach because I just do it naturally, right? So um, give me, I need some material to work with. So give me an example of something that you want in your life right now. Hmm. Uh, straight in my mind right now is ease. I think I have a story a little bit like some of my version of what you were talking about, about taking the harder path. Cool. Ease would be a thing yeah. that I would love. Yeah. And so when you think about ease, like what's in the way of you having an easeful life? I guess it's a sense, well, you know, I'm able to see some of this, you know, some of it is a, a long time pattern of things are okay as long as I'm making sure they're okay by sitting down and doing work. Right. And so there's a sense that it's not that, that that pattern is what's in there. Yeah. So there's for you a pattern in life where like, if I want things to be okay, I need to be working. Yeah. And then what happens if you stop working? Do things just naturally fall apart or do you get anxious? Like what actually happens if you stop, if you relax for a minute? You know, I'm not even sure I know that. Uh, you know, there's an extent to which I'm not sure I know that. Uh, I get happy, you know, is one of the things that huh. happens. Like I have a beautiful holiday or a wonderful time traveling or uh, whatever that is. Uh, hmm. and then it, you know, it feels, but you know, what's interesting is it feels like the bit of ease that I'm really interested in is how does my professional life feel full of ease? And that's the bit where it's like, oh, I'm less sure what happens there. So you're able to be, and I I feel like I'm going to kind of coaching you now. Is that okay with you? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Yeah, cool. All right. So, um, so in your personal life, you're able to kind of, when you step away from work, you find ease feels a bit easier. Yeah, and in fact, I uh, I think from when I had really dull jobs, I got really good at making a commitment that in my own time I was going to be useful. That was going to be my time for whatever. And uh, okay, then there's a sense that you know a useful thing for me to carry on from those old jobs into a job that I love is taking it seriously, so that I sit down and do the work. And mm. then a part that slightly holds me back from that is I've got a division of ease, perhaps hmm. between the, pers- the personal time and work time. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing you say is you're good at this sort of like, and work is work and ease is ease, but ease can't come into work and work can't come into ease. They're sort of separate for you. Yeah. And I also hear a bit of a dichotomy between like, you can't be serious and be easeful. Uh, yeah. I think like I intellect, this is one of those great times. It's not like I intellectually know that that's not true. 
And I also, yeah, I have you... some embodied experience of doing my best work in a way that felt deeply easy. And in my coaching, I am able to open, like in a time with a client, I'm able to open to that sense of ease okay. uh, much so more. I'm gonna, but, yeah. yeah. Can I pause? I'm going to step out of the conversation for a minute. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So what's just happened is I've now tagged right. in my mind. Okay. So one piece of work I could do is we could do work on discovering what actually happens around ease, right? So that could be an interesting piece of work. Send an empty box. And then I'm clear on the benefit. The benefit would be that if you understood how ease related to your work or how ease showed up or how you created ease in your life, you'd be able to choose and identify more clearly when you were getting out of ease and choose back into it more, right? So now I've tagged that. That's like a little box. And if I was taking notes, I would have written down ease, not understanding it, and then like a couple things about the benefit, like, okay, you know, better understanding, more choice. I would have literally written that on a piece of paper. Nice. And then when you're getting to talking about the work, you're then saying to the client, well, look, here's the path we'll take. It's going to include, Robbie, it's going to include this bit about ease. We'll work to understand it. We'll do this. Is that right? That you then take that. Yeah, and basically. And so space. then the next place I would have gone in our conversation was like, all right, great. Well, tell me the things that are actually hard about work, right? Because um, so I typically like to have something that's sort of spiritual or being based. I want something that's sort of around strategy or structure, um, often a particular skill set the client wants to earn, learn or something around a relationship they want to work on. There's these little like I have these little category boxes. I'm like, these are the things that people ultimately care about. It's hard to sell people just on spirituality. Like they kind of want it, but it's hard. So you need to include something about strategy, something about the skill they're going to learn, something about a relationship important. So I probably would have gone to like, what's something hard about your work? And so then you would have told me, I don't know, working with clients or selling. And I'm like, great. Tell me why selling is hard and what's the impact of that. I mean, really, if I've been doing sales more, I would have actually said like, oh, what is it costing you to, to relate to work as not useful? But I would have done that having already captured that this is a thing that I want. So then once we would have gotten, I said, you know, give me a minute. Let me look over my notes. I've looked through my notes, make sure I had it. I, I would already have three bullet pointed things written down, captured in the moment. And I would say, cool. So if we we're going to work together, here's some of the things that we could work on. The first thing I think I'd want to really want to work on with you is really having a deep and powerful understanding of, of why ease doesn't show up for you at work and why it's so hard for you to really feel ease when you're working and to really get in there and understand sort of where it came from, what it arose from and, and how you can start to choose to be at work and be easeful at the same time. And I'm really present that, you know, in doing that, we can have you go from this place of like confusion and uncertainty and like, oh man, I'm doing that thing again where I'm struggling and what is that? And, and the sense of despair that that brought, I can go from there to this place of like, oh, I'm doing that thing again. And I don't have to do that thing again. And what's possible for me is actually to create this moment right now as being easeful. I'm going to pause. As I said that, what was happening for you in your body? Hmm. Uh, yeah, the, well, it was beautiful. So at the moment that you, there was something really nice. I wasn't totally paying attention because, you know, I suddenly realized that in this moment, because I've got my podcaster hat on as well. But, um, uh, as you said, you know, the, the two different reactions to I'm doing that thing again, there was like a, there was a shift in my chest at the second one, you know, I, mm, it was yeah. just like, ah, yeah, that's that thing, isn't it? That's the, that's the distinction. Yeah. So that's what creating possibility, which is what we all as coaches talk about. That's what it feels like. Mm. Right. And it's important that you feel the tension over here. I'm going to die. If I don't stop eating cheeseburgers over here, if I do yoga, I get another 10 years of my family. Now it doesn't have to be that significant, right? Because mostly we're not dealing with life and death, but you want people to feel that tension because it is only within that tension that we make commitment. 
And what we do really beautifully with our lives is just like whitewash it. And Zen talks about this all the time, right? Zen Buddhism talks about you sit with death at your altar because life is precious. You do not, you do may not have a year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years, right? You have right now, you've got today to be with your family, to look at a flower, to feel the breeze. Instead of running off on these fantasies and denials, right? Like it's right now. So like this work of having people really be in the tension of like, this is how life could actually be for you. Because it is, right? And that's my job as a coach to sit with someone and just be so present of their possibility, right? Even if like all my stories, I'm like, they're a failure and they're not going to do it. And they're late, right? All that stuff, which they have about themselves to convince the rest of the world about. But to really be with someone that's like, oh man, this person could live a life that when they die, they can look back and say, man, I fucking lived. I loved my wife. I loved my family. I went after the job that I wanted. I took that vacation. I built my business, right? This is, you know, Coaching is about preparing people for the moment of their death so they can look back and say, I lived life. You're going to like be squirming like, I don't want to create tension and put pressure. Like you don't have to create any pressure. Life and death have created the pressure for you. All you have to do is get people present to it. Right. And so that's all I'm doing. And I'm doing that inside Klaus while I'm doing all that understands the psychology of sales, which is that people don't commit unless they feel some pain, unless something's at stake, right? So the psychology of it is like, can feel manipulative, but what's really going on is this really beautiful spiritual conversation. And that's how I create it. And my clients feel me creating that. Just like with you, like, you know, we could, I could go back and literally break down step-by-step step the psychology of what I did, right? I created, I created the pain and the impact. And then I had you go from the darkness to the light, right? It's everything that every marketing book did it. But who I'm being with you as we're doing that, it's not like, ha, 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 I'm going to get this slightly whiplash. I'm going to get this guy's money. Ha, ha, ha. I've got him now. You know, who I'm being is like, oh man, this tension is the tension of your life. And I get to be with you in it. I get to explore with you with it at the same time. And so who I'm being about it is totally different and changes the whole feeling of the conversation because of how I'm committed to being with people when I sell. Hmm. Isn't it interesting that, um, you know, I think there's a load of, there's a load of stuff in what you just said, but that piece particularly like the, you know, the, you know, I just think you described there the honor in sales, right? The honor in sales is this might be the only time I get to be with this person. The only opportunity I might have to show them the difference that could be made between their life on the line that it's on now and their life. If they, if they choose a different path and, you know, What's, you know, it's like almost what's more on, what could be more honorable than helping people have that conversation. Yeah. And just like anything else that's amazing and honorable, we've managed to muck it up, right? Sort of like sex is the most beautiful, amazing thing. And we just turn turn it totally dirty, right? This is like very, we're very reliable to do this with everything that has any sort of purity to it as humans. Um, And I think for me, the thing that helps me is that like, and I think this is true for most coaches, is that we have actually all had that conversation. I think people who end up in coaching have had that conversation and been on the other side of it and get how powerful it is. You know, for me, it was that conversation about going into the monastery. I mean, you know, I have a chapter in my book called the most important sales conversation of my life. And it was this conversation where this guy was just telling me about the possibility of meditation. And then he just invited me, Hey, if you're really interested in this, come try out meditation. And over the course of the next three years, I went from being uh, I smoked a pack of cigarettes a day. I was a daily, smoked an enormous amount of pot all the time. I had dreadlocks. I treated myself with very low respect, right? Uh, I was a womanizer. I just sort of slept with whoever I wanted. I went from that to 
the beginning, the seedling of the man I am today, which I'm incredibly proud of because of one conversation. That's magic, man. Like that is magic. That's what coaching is, right? Magicians speak words and, and things change. That's what we do. And the sales conversation can be the most magical conversation. And it's not that, I, I mean, it's also important for me to hold it. Like they might say no and some other conversation might change their life. That's the other side of it. Always trusting the client will work themselves out. But the possibility of that, oh, this is the conversation where a person could make a choice where literally their whole life tilts and goes in a new direction. Yeah, man, be present, be loving, be kind, but be clear that that conversation, that question does not happen without some tension, does not happen without some pressure. This idea of like, well, I don't want them to feel any pressure. Like, well, then you don't want them to make a commitment, right? I don't feel any pressure drinking this glass of water. I'm not like sitting and go like, oh, should I drink the glass of water? And what does it mean? And what will it mean about me as a man? And what will my what will my wife think? What will my friends think if I drink this glass of water? Right? I drink the glass of water because it requires no commitment. Right? It requires me literally reaching out my hand and picking it up. So there's no commitment. There's nothing at stake. And so as a result of that, it's not meaningful. Now, you know, if I meditated for a week, it'd be super meaningful. But um, so anything could be meaningful. But for those really big conversations, for those big choices, there's some tension. You know, I've been engaged before. I have not been married, but I remember the tension of you hold out the ring and what is she going to say? Even if you're like 90% sure she's going to say yes, right? There's that tension, that moment. And if there was no tension, she, she was like, yeah, sure, whatever. It would be, it'd be like meaningless, right? You'd be like, why did I even ask her? What's the point, right? That's why we spent all this time building all this stuff around like the engagement thing is like the pressure of that moment is magical, and so if you take the pressure away from a sales conversation, you take the tension, right? And it's not you pressuring them. That's a really key distinction. There's just the pressure of the commitment and your ability to be with and calm and present with them in the pressure of that commitment without getting attached and without moving. Oh man, it's like the most beautiful gift you can give someone. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, that's like a massive key distinction, isn't it? About, you know, the kind of icky sales and perhaps sales with honor is where does the pressure come from? Because one of the things that kind of like, uh, yeah, classic sales book used by apocryphal used car salesman involves creating pressure where none necessarily exists. And is often, I think, based around that. Whereas what we're talking about here is right. The pressure of the commitment. Yeah. You got to sign up right now or else. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, if you could have this call, you know, what's going to happen, right? All that stuff. <laughs> yeah. You, I mean, you know, you don't actually, that's the trick is like, when you pay attention, you don't actually need to create any pressure. It's just already there. People's lives are constantly under pressure. They just don't notice it, you know? And the difference is like, you know, if you don't learn to talk to your son differently, he might grow up and relate to you in the same way relate to your father. If you don't learn how to lead your employees differently, it's going to be another three employees before you figure this out. If you spend another month and another several thousand dollars trying to build your coaching business without someone who's going to really kind of tell it how it is, you're going to feel, you know, three times as much as a failure as you do right now. The tension's just there. I don't have to make it up. Right. And sometimes like I literally have been in sales uh, coaching conversations or on commitment or sales conversations. And I've been like, it just doesn't really seem like you have much context to do anything. And I've actually sold people on that. Right. But you know, but if people, if there's no pressure there, I don't make it up. I'm just like, Oh, it seems like you're kind of fine. Like why? And then I'll just say to them, like, I literally said this in a coaching conversation last week. I was like, it doesn't really seem like you have a reason to hire a coach. So I was like, you know, do you want to hire me? Like, it doesn't seem like you have much, much more. And I told him, I was like, you know, if I'm okay, if you're fine, like you don't have to hire a coach just because you should. 
And then he found the pressure. He was like, yeah, no, but I really like, I think there is something here for me. And I was like, oh, well, tell me what it is. And then he sold himself, right? He created the pressure himself because there was something for him on the line. There was underneath the level of his reasonableness, there was something down there that he was really curious about that he wanted. He didn't know what it was, but he was curious enough to invest some money to figure it out. And I was like, great. Yeah, well, and he was curious enough to, in the moment where you said, I'm not sure there's anything here, he was curious enough to catch it. Like the, the, the pressure, wherever yeah. it was, was there somewhere. It's also worth saying, like, again, it's isn't it interesting that that kind of language, almost the phrases you used with him in the way you told the story could, again, be out of those old school sales courses. But because of who you're being in that moment and where it's coming from, it's a beautiful moment instead of a kind of, you can't have this thing that I'm selling because you don't need it. And then they're like, people want it because that's how humans are. Yeah. Um, yeah, the doing is actually very similar, but the being is totally different. I mean, that's the, and that's, you know, teaching being is always really difficult, but like, I mean, yeah, that's, that's it. And I'm not even the best. I mean, I know people who are way better than me at sales. I mean, that's part of it is like, it's not actually a natural gift of mine. I'm pretty good at it, right? It's in my zone of competency, but it's not. I mean, I have a friend who like, you know, he signed a million dollar client. He just did it effortlessly, but he's just, he is attraction. He just creates tension and people just want everything he has. And so it's great, but you know, his way of teaching sales, I'm like, I don't actually think it's very, I don't know if it's actually very effective with people, right? So there's something about the, like, I actually wasn't always great at this, but I managed to fall in love with it. That, yeah, it gives me a different kind of reverence or perspective on it. And then, so tell me a little bit about uh, coaching beyond yes or no. So there's, you've mm-hmm. created that kind of path for people and given them the sense of what's at stake and the pressure. And then that's where a lot of people's conversations would kind of end. They end with the yes or the no. Yeah. So how do the conversations that you're having with, with prospective clients go at that moment? Yeah. So first of all, I've, I've set it up, right? So I'm very clear, like, Hey, we're going to talk about coaching because the end, and you know, you might be a yes or no to this. And, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to have a look at that together. So the first thing is it's you're entering a new conversation. What, what people expect is, First of all, they want to get out of the tension. So it's always interesting to me. People don't care about the details of your coaching program or your coaching group until you tell them how much it costs. As soon as you say it costs $5,000, all of a sudden they're like, well, what are the calls? And like, well, you know, because they just don't like, they know they kind of want it and they're scared and they just don't want to be with that. So all of a sudden the details become very important, right? So, um, which I always just find, I actually said that to some of the other day. I'm like, oh, isn't it funny that the details become important once I tell you how much it costs? So people are just uncomfortable. They want to get out of the tension and they will do anything to get out of the tension, right? They will tell you, let me think about it. They will tell you, um, I got to talk to my partner. They will tell you, right? So they'll say anything. So all those traditional like, uh, quote unquote objections, they're just a way of getting out of the tension of the commitment that's there, right? Which is that probably they want it, right? But they're afraid or they're nervous or they're not sure. And so they want, they want to, and they feel uncomfortable because you put them, you said, you know, you're, you're on the knee with a ring out saying this ring is your possible future. And they got to give you an answer. Right. And very much like uh, a woman who doesn't want to tell a guy no, when he asks her out of the jumbotron, you're like, how the hell do I get out of this thing? Right. So that's how they're being. So you just accept that. Like, that's not weird that if it shows up, right, that's a normal thing. And so I'm always clear, like the coaching doesn't end there. Right. I, this is just a pause. And whether they say yes or no, there's more coaching that's going to happen. And I, I'm always there was always coaching that happens after the yes or the no. Let me explain what happens after the yes first. It's a little bit easier and gives you a sense of this. So if somebody says yes, I then challenge their yes, which you know, you're supposed to do in sales. But what I find is that people's yeses are sometimes flimsy, 
right? Sometimes they get out of the tension by saying yes. So I check in with them like, cool, that's awesome. I feel the power of your commitment. I want to acknowledge you that. Do you mind if I ask you some questions about that? And they're like, yeah. I was like, hey, cool. I'm curious. If you're a yes right now, what might have you turn from a yes to a no after you got on the phone, off the phone today? And not to say like, oh, you know, probably nothing. I'm like, yeah, but if there was anything, what might there be? And so it's like, well, you know, I might go talk to my partner and they might say, oh, that's really expensive. And I might get talked out of it. I'm like, oh yeah, like that's happened to me before too. I've been excited about something. And then my partner sort of said, oh, why would you spend that? And I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't spend that. And so it's like, great. So like, what, you know, what might you say to them? Like, what, how, what's the kind of conversation you want to have with them? Yeah, cool. I got to get clear. Okay. Yeah. So I would say this, or they might say like, well, I'm going to get the phone. I might regret it. Okay, cool. So, you know, how did, how does that show up for you? How would you want to deal with it? How do you want to relate with it? And so they'll kind of tell me, and then I'll say, um, and this is, you know, they call this verbal hypnosis, but it's just creating possibility. I say, well, you might just find that when you talk to your, you talk to your partner, that that conversation actually has you be more clear about why you want to do this. Right. Or I might say like, ah, oh, you might notice that when that doubt comes up, you realize like, oh, right, this doubt is familiar and you know how to deal with it. So I'm sort of setting them up for like, oh, there's a way this can go that's a little different for you, right? And sometimes they say like, nope, I'm completely clear. I'm like, awesome, Why? I'm glad that we checked in, right? But I'm one, both preparing them to deal with their own objections that are come up after the call because they always come up. And two, I'm having them choose back into the yes again, right? I'm not letting them out of the tension of the commitment. I'm like, no, no, no. Stay in the tension of the commitment. Stay in the tension of the commitment. Because the truth is, the tension of that commitment is going to last the entire time we coach together. Because that is, that's just one of the 1,000 commitments they're going to have to make for coaching to work, right? So that's how it looks for the yes. So I know I'm going to do that even if they say yes. So I'm not like, oh, they're going to say yes, I'm going to get their credit card and go you know, start spending my money, right? So I know I'm going to do that. So in some ways, that just relieves a lot of tension because I'm like, oh, right. Like, this is what I'm going to do if they say yes. I know. And, so and let me, say, sorry, in a, in, yeah. a, in, a, in a too small a detail question, but I want to ask it, is this in the same conversation usually, or is this in a separate subsequent conversation? From typically the same, typically yeah. the same conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes if they say, if they have a no or they have a concern, we'll put a second conversation in. Um, but I try to end my proposal calls with enough time so that we can get into that. Um, so if they say no, depending on the time we have left, I might say, let's have another conversation about it. But I, the trick is then is, okay, so they, they want to kind of get out of the tension. So you have to remove a little bit of it. What most coaches or salespeople do is they like double down the pressure. No, 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 stay in the tension, stay in the tension. And they're like, want to get out of it. And, and so they'll just get way, they'll get even more squirrely, right? So the trick is, is now you're actually entering into a new coaching conversation with them about their, about their concerns. You have to get permission. Because if you don't get permission, they're going to feel like you're pushing them, right? So you say, cool, I got it. I want to check in. It sounds like you want this, but your desire for, you don't think you can afford it. Do I have that right? You're kind of checking in, right? This is their situation. You're not just saying like, no, they're, and they might say like, well, it's not that, but it's this. So then you're kind of like, okay, it's actually something else. But like, oh yeah, so I really want to do this, but I'm afraid that I can't, make, I can't pay the money. Cool, I got it, great. I'm curious, I'd love to take coaching off the table, right? So you kind of remove the tension. You're saying to them, I'm not selling to you anymore. I'm not going to ask you to say yes or no on this call. I don't even say to people like, hey, even if you said yes at the end of this conversation, I wouldn't sell you coaching. So you're removing it. You're saying, nope, we're not talking about that anymore. And it's important that you take that aside because you're shifting again from this person that's holding tension a little bit back into a coach and they need to feel that change. And then you say, would you be willing to take a look at that together with me? And most of the time they'll be like, yeah, sometimes we'll be like, no. And I'll be like, cool. 
great. It sounds like we're complete for today. You just let them go. But most of the people are like, oh yeah, because that's not, first of all, they're surprised because what they're, what they expect you to do is they express you to pressure them. Well, come on, man. And what about this? And, or they expect you to like, kind of be like, oh, that's fine. And kind of scurry away into a bush, which most, most coaches do. And I say, oh, that's fine. And sorry. And, you know, sorry, I asked you out. Didn't mean to be so awkward, you know? And you just, you just coach them on it like anything else. So it's almost like they brought to you separately. I want to buy this thing, but I'm afraid. And you just coach them on it in the same way you coach them on anything else, right? The basics of coaching is they have something they want. There's something in the way that, of that happening. And there's, you know, and then you coach them on that gap. That's all coaching is, right? I want this. Here's the gap. All right, let's look at what's in the gap. So they want the thing, which is hiring you as a coach. The thing that's in the way is the money. And you start talking about, it. okay, cool. So tell me what that's about. Like, does this come up for you often? And like, when you think about this and, and then there's, uh, there are two magical questions that I often use and teach people. So the two magical questions are, and sometimes if my conversation is over, I'll give them these questions and say, let's set up another conversation and bring the answers back to it. The two magical questions, which I, I think I learned from Christina Berkeley. The first one is, if you could have anything you want out of coaching, it would make it easy for you to say yes at this amount of money, what would it be? Because there is something they want that is worth whatever sacrifice they have to make, right? And like if your daughter needed a surgery to save her life and you had to find $40,000, you would likely become the most resourceful motherfucker on the planet to get $40,000. GoFundMe campaigns, bake sales, like you would do anything, right? Because there was something at stake. So there is something. Now, it may not be a thing you can give them in coaching, right? But there is something that they really care about. So you ask them what that is because you missed it. Somehow you missed it. And oftentimes they'll say like, oh yeah, well, I'd have to know that I would get 10 clients, right? So they want a sort of clear ROI or like, well, yeah, like we talked about the stuff around like my ease, but really if I like, you know, if I knew that like I could go into a big corporate office and make a proposal that would, that would be really successful, that would actually have it be different. So there's a thing they kind of been hiding that they actually want. So they'll tell you, and then you great. Then you could include that or talk about how you could create that in coaching. Um, so that's the first question. Um, and then sometimes it'll be like, well, no, there's nothing. And then you're like, okay, that's great. And then the second is you got to find out what their context of affordability is, right? Because we all have a context of possibility and a context of affordability, right? So for example, in New York, $10 for a cab ride is reasonable. In India, $10 for a cab ride is a crazy ripoff, right? It's like, should be like 50 rupees, which is like less than a dollar, right? And when I was spent time in India, I would haggle people over like a dollar and I would just like, how am I, what do I care? But you still want to get, even though it's 50 cents, you don't want to get ripped off. Like no one's get ripped off. So then the, the second question is the context of affordability. And that question is, um, if you could pay anything you wanted, what would you pay? And what would you want to get for that? And so then they'll tell you. And sometimes the gap is like, you know, it's like you're offering $30,000 and I'm like, well, I could pay 20, right? Or um, it's $12,000. Well, I really want to, you know, it has some weird calculation. It's 10% of my gross income is $9,000. So I want to pay $9,000. And then you get a choice as a coach. Okay, well, do I want to master context of affordability? Do I want to, you know, but you're now in this conversation where actually all the information is on the table and you just coach them towards it. Um, and nine times, nine times out of 10, you can then often get people to say yes, right? Or get them to commit because now you kind of understand all this stuff, which actually is hidden in the background of the whole previous conversation sort of gets revealed to you. So that's how I work with people. And, you know, very often they will say yes at the end of that conversation. Yeah. And again, it's, it's like, it's important to hold, isn't it? The, the sense that the reason that people are saying yes at that point is because it is what they want to do. Like you've, you've got them to help, you've helped them see that the gap between the life, uh, the current life that will just turn out if things just roll on for another X decades or the other 
other possibility not that you've kind of tricked them into it which is what like which is the, the bad rap that that sales gets um i want to get on to talking a bit more about what you're working on right now and what's coming up for you um but first i just wonder you kind of got into a little bit the context of affordability there mm. and i think that for a lot of coaches there's a sense of these stories about people who have enormous coaching businesses with people who pay 50,000 I can't remember the number you said, $90,000 for an engagement. And there's just a sense of unreality about that because a lot of people in the world don't operate in a, I don't know what it is, including me really, in a space where there are people who spend $90,000 on things that aren't houses, essentially. Yeah. So I just wonder if you could say, speak a little bit to that, that sense of those people and what's what's different about that and it sounds like how did you come i guess and this this may be a really long answer so feel free to do with what you want but how did that come about as someone who you know, came out of the monastery uh stumbled across coaching realized it was the thing read the yeah. prosperous coach you know how did that come it's actually about? a very short answer i just kept doubling my rates yeah and then at a certain point i stopped I and mean, i could have kept going right <laughs> You know, what, I, what was your rule? Did you have a rule like I'll double it every third person or what, how did it work? No, I mean, uh, this is what coaches are always asking me for is like, well, tell me what I should charge. I'm like, I don't know. What, what can you, how good are you at sales? Like, what are the kinds of people you're talking to? Right. There's for every person, there's a context of possibility and affordability. And sure enough, if the people you're talking to have a very small, you know, it would take a lot for you to convince me that paying a thousand dollars for a cab ride is a good idea. But if my father's having a heart attack, I'll put him in an ambulance. And guess what? An ambulance costs about $1,000. So then it's like, oh yeah, that context of affordability is totally different. So people bring a context of affordability to coaching. Very often it's a context around therapy or a lawyer or accountant. They want to compare you to their lawyer. Well, you're more expensive than my lawyer. I'm like, well, I'm not your lawyer, right? So you have to create a different context for them. That's, that's just new. Um, I mean, most of the people that are paying me that amount of money have probably hired a coach before or done some kind of work. It's not that it's not possible. I mean, I did just sign a client who's ever worked with a coach before. Um, but, you know, they didn't really have a good context for it. Their context was about how much money they made a year and, you know, what a percentage they should spend towards per- you know, something they read in an article, right? Well, people say you should spend 10% of this on your thing. So I'm like, okay, great. So that's how much money we're going to spend. Um, I think that there is no right answer, but there's you practice different things at different times in your coaching. And the key is to periodically change the thing you practice. So when you're a new coach, your practice is coach. For free, for your friend, the taxi cab driver, you just got to coach. Because when you're a new coach, the number one thing that's going to have you better is doing more coaching. Now, it helps if you're attentive to your coaching and you practice specific things. And that's the whole coaching joke is all about deliberate practice around coaching. So read a book on deliberate practice or read all the stuff we have at the coaching dojo and practice coaching. So that's the practice you start with. And then once you, you know, I've done a little bit of that, then you have to practice, get clients and the practice, get clients comes back. There's been times where I've been like, I need clients and I have to practice, get clients. And when you're practicing, get clients, right. All the other stuff, like practicing, keeping my feet, a particular thing, or like charging this amount of money, that's all secondary to get clients, right? There are periods of times where I've dropped my weights rates in half or cut people really good deals because I know I need to get clients. Because I, I know personally myself, if I get a couple of victories, then I feel more confident. 
and then able to go out and charge more and do everything else. So if like, I just am really clear, I need to get clients. I get over like, oh, I used to charge 25,000. Now I'm charging 12. I'm like, whatever, dude, you think the rent has to get paid, go get some clients. Right. And I relate to it in a particular way, but that's a particular kind of practice. Then there's a practice of raise your rates. And there's a particular time that as a coach, you need to practice raise your rates. And so you just practice. Can I put it this high? Oh, that feels too hard. Put it down here. And maybe I'll try doubling it. I'll give this person this proposal. And people are like, well, it's not fair. Everyone should get charged the same amount. Like, yeah. What is that? That's meaningless. You know, like it's not fair. You're not selling a product. It's not widgets, right? Like you're selling coaching. It's all unique every time, right? So um, there's a practice of, of raising your rates, a particular kind of practice. There's a practice of setting a high rate and sticking to it. I think the first time I charged more than $12,000 for a year, um, I said for six months, this is my rate. And if I get all no's for six months, I am not dropping my rate. Now, for me, that was a good time to practice that. I had plenty of clients. I wasn't worried about money. I felt all this fear about this rate being here. And so I practiced sticking to my rate. And sure enough, I got a ton of no's, right? Because my ability to enroll at $20,000 for six months or whatever it was, was awful. Like I didn't know how to create the context. I wasn't talking to the right people. Like it was a whole new ball game. It was like I'd never sold anything before in my whole life. But eventually I learned how to sell that amount of money. And and that doesn't change. Like every time I raise my rates or I talk to a new kind of client, I basically have to learn how to do all of this all over again, which I'm fine with um, most of the time. Sometimes it's annoying. <laughs> um, but you just practice different things at different times. The danger is when coaches get stuck into one practice as the answer. Well, I just have to get clients. And I'll be like, well, why don't you raise your rates? I'm like, well, I'm afraid they'll say no. I'm like, well, that's just always going to be there. It's not like if you just wait a year and charge $100 <laughs> a session, you're now going to be like, oh, now I feel perfectly comfortable charging $500 a session. No, no, no. You're going to be scared crapless. Now, maybe you'll be a little bit more confident in your coaching. But that fear is always going to be there. I do not know of a single coach who, when they have gone from $20,000 to $30,000 to $40,000, $50,000, $100,000, did not feel some sense of like, Oh, can I do this? Right? Like it feels scary. You know, some of them are better at dealing with it than others, but, um, but yeah, it always feels a bit nerve wracking. So there is no right rate. I mean, I tell coaches a good starting rate is $500 a month for two sessions. $500 a month is a good context of affordability for most people. Two sessions has you be able to like, you know, you're still charging 250 a session, which is a good amount. That's a good starting place. But then you want to get above a thousand dollars a month. A thousand dollars a month feels to me like the magic number. I noticed that when coaches get over about $1,000 a month, their ability to go to $25,034 gets much easier. Below $1,000 a month, people start to think about per session rate. And like, so to me, that's like one of the most magic milestones. Once you get over $1,000 a month, once you can say, hey, I want you to pay me $1,000 a month or more, a lot of stuff becomes possible. The level of people you talk to changes, your ability to enroll changes. So those are kind of the two milestones that I, I kind of really look at when I do coaching with people. But there is no right rate. Um, and so I literally just from period of time, I would have my rate be a thing and I go, oh, I need to raise my rates. Now it's time to practice raising my rates. And then I'm just in the practice of that. And all the stuff that comes every time I raise my rates, no one's going to hire me. And what if I don't get any clients? It all shows up. Not a good time to practice raising your rates is when you don't have any money, you don't have any clients, you're desperate because you're like, oh, I need to raise my rates. I mean, sometimes it works for some people, but usually the time to raise your rates is when you feel a little bit of stability and it feels like a bit of a stretch, but it doesn't throw you into panic. So does that answer, I don't know if that answered your question or not. No, I think it does. And it's just, it's interesting. And, and I think, uh, you know, I think it's a valuable discussion that probably doesn't happen quite enough about this. Yeah, about that, for coaches at least, about that piece, about raising rates, about 
you know, we haven't really, because we we talked a lot about sales and we probably could have a lot of similar conversations to that about the stories people have about money um, as well. Um, I guess there's a piece that I just think is worth asking you. I don't know if this is a curious thing that I, just checking in what I kind of think about it. So, so I could, what what happened when you were talking then is I could imagine some of the people I know, listeners to the podcast, coaches I know, asking the question, "Yeah, but what about like, do I want?" And this is like, you know, do I want to get to the point where I only know that where I'm only working with the people who can pay a thousand dollars a month, uh, more than a thousand dollars a month, and that's the kind of question. What about the rest of us? They might yeah. say, and, wh- and what's your feeling around those questions? So I just create different things for them. Like I'm creating this mastermind for new coaches. It's going to be $5,000 for six months, which is, I mean, you know, way less than half of what I charge, but I just feel really called. I'm like, I really want to work with new coaches, you know, and, and we're in a particular conversation about race and right now as a society, and, you know, there are not a lot of people of color in the coaching space. And so for the dojo, like I've always been really clear, like I make an effort to have that be a diverse space. And if someone is a person of color and I feel their authentic interest and I can make the money work for them, I always want them to have something on the line, but I've given huge discounts to that because I want people to do it. So it's, it's not like a people like it's like an either, or like I'm only working with, you know, $25,000 clients or $50,000 clients. And that's it. That's the only thing I'm doing. Right. Or I'm like, Oh, I'm only going to like be the man of the people. And I'm, you know, and it's this weird, like, well, the pricing has to be the same. Like, why, why does it have to be the same? It's your business. You make it up anyway. What if they get upset? I'm like, well, you have to be able to hold as a coach this tension of like the money is completely about you and never about you. So on the one side, like, hey, like part of why I charge what I charge for one-on-one clients is like, I don't want to work with 15 clients at a time. Some coaches I knew, they love working 15 clients at a time. I'm like, I don't want to. I go really deep with people. I really get into all their lives. I want to write them emails. I want to send them gifts. Like I want to be invested. It's hard for me to hold 10 people in my heart with that level of depth all the time. I can do it, but it's just tough. Six to eight feels really good to me. Like, yeah, I can really focus. I can think about them a lot. And, and so for, for my life to make sense and what I declare I want to make, I need to charge a certain amount of money to make that viable, right? Otherwise, like, I'm just going to be stressed out about rent all the time and trying to hustle get clients. And that's, that's not who I'm committed to being. So in some ways, like, it's completely about me. Like when a client pays me $25,000, it's all about me right? Like, oh, I'm making some money, baby. This is great, right? And I fully own that that is true on some level. And that's one half of the equation. And the other half of the equation is has nothing to do with me at all, right? They are, the client is not thinking, focus oh, going to get to go on a vacation with this money. Like, I mean, they might think that, but they're like, oh, what is this going to cost me? What will I not be able to spend it on? Will it be worth it? So that $25,000 to them represents something completely different to me. And so my ability to coach is I have to hold that. And so when I create a price with somebody, so let's say, you know, I, I had a, a woman who wanted to join the dojo, really incredible woman. She had escaped from an abusive marriage. She um, was a Muslim. She lived in England. She had children. She really wanted to do the dojo. And so I didn't just say like, oh, I'll just give it to you for free. I was like, I had that conversation with her, like, what would feel like a stretch for you, right? And it was, you know, a much smaller portion than the total dojo fee. But I could feel like, oh, this felt like a stretch, but doable. And that's what I'm looking for on some level is what's a stretch and what's doable, right? So I want to feel them a bit uncomfortable. I want to feel them on their edge because that's what the commitment needs. So that's what I'm looking for for them. That money represents what is on the edge. 
I always feel a little bummed when like they say yes too easily to the price. I'm like, oh, I should have raised my rate. Not both because I'm like, I could have got more money out of it. That is a thought I have. But two, but like, oh, maybe this isn't actually enough for them. Maybe it should be more. And that what that tension is has some it is some relationship to how much money they make in their contact affordability, but it might not. Some people with a lot of money paying twenty thousand dollars feels like a big investment for them, especially in personal development. They might pay fifty thousand dollars for a car, but hiring a coach twenty thousand dollars feels crazy, right? So it, it is it's you know this price exists in a very particular context, in a very particular way in their life, and so if you can really understand that while holding on and being responsible for like yeah I'm gonna you know I'm gonna buy this thing with this money, you know. If you can feel that tension there and sit in it, again, in the same kind of tension we always run in coaching, then you can really serve people in that place. So all of this, like, I'm like, oh, well, do I want to coach these people? I mean, it's just a bunch of moral arrogance, right? Like, look, I don't care if you want to charge people $200 and coach a lot of people. Allison Crow, an amazing coach I know, she has a membership site. People pay her $100 a month. She coaches a bunch of people at a time. Works great for her. She does incredible work. That's what she's declared to do. She made a very successful business. But people get very like, oh, well, I can't do it. Or like, oh, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to be rich and greedy. And like, I don't want to coach these people. Okay, great. So coach three rich people, have them pay you $100,000 a year. And then coach six people who don't have any money for free, right? You get to make the business up that you want. Stop being such a friggin' victim to it, right? You get, you get to create whatever you want as a coach. You get to do that. And that's, by the way, what you teach your clients. So friggin' walk your talk already, right? So this idea that like, oh, I don't want to coach these kind of people. Well, you know, you got to decide what that balance is for you. I figured out what it is for me. I feel comfortable with it. Maybe you, maybe you don't, maybe that's a different place for you, but I'm okay with it. You know? And again, I'm really clear. I want to create something for coaches to get better at coaching. So I have a $5,000 six week accelerator called the dojo to do that. I want to help new coaches. They can't pay me $25, $30,000 to work with me. So I created a six month things at 5k so they can do it. So if you really want to stand for something, you can make it work, right? Both for you and for them. Um, and it's just the, the challenge in business is how do you make it all work? How do you have your values be aligned with what you declare? Because we always think we have to choose. Like I either have to declare to make a lot of money and live a comfortable life, right? And I want to be really clear. I'm not like super rich. Like I had a year, right? You know, made $250,000 and spent two seventy five. So just making a big money doesn't mean you're making a lot of money, <laughs> right? So I'm not like driving a Maserati. I live actually quite simply. But, you know, you got to decide like, here's what I'm declare. And then here my values are. And then instead of saying, well, I've got to pick, you know, do I want to make money or have values? Like, no. How can you create a life that is of deep value and is what you declare? How can you sell really skillfully when people really want to work with you and have honor? The, the false choices, getting rid of these false choices is what coaching is all about. Yeah. Beautiful. So I'm curious before we finish. Um... Like, and that, that feels in some ways like a really nice place to finish because it's just, sure. it really captures what I think we've been talking about in this conversation. I guess I've got a, a you know, a little, I just, yeah, just tell us about your work now, what's coming up. You know, I can tell, you can hear me. I almost jumped back into the conversation and I was like, no, no, we've got to, let's, let's bring this towards an end. But yeah, tell us about what, what, what are you working on at the moment? What's the kind of exciting stuff for you? What's the edge for you? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> my one answer to that is I'm working on nothing because I'm always working on nothing. Nothing is the most important thing to work on. Wait, tell us more <laughs> about that. Tell me more about that. Uh, well, yeah, my whole purpose in life is to come and be from nothing. And so when you come from nothing and create nothing, nothing is what arises. That's sort of my ultimate goal in life is to come from nothing. 
I'll, I'll never achieve it probably, but um, the projects I'm working on is I'm doing a nine month, no woman vision quest. So I'm nine months of actively eschewing all forms of the embodied feminine and spending time with myself and the sacred feminine. That's probably the most important project. So everything else sort of comes secondary to that and gets filtered through it. As an impact of that project, I know we could do a whole podcast on that too. Definitely. Um, as an impact of that project, I realized that I've burnt through a particular layer of karma or purpose. And so I'm actually really unclear about what I'm supposed to work on next. It's something around writing, which is why I'm writing the book. I do feel called to work with kind of newer coaches right now. So there's a little bit of that. But I'm mostly sitting in this place of I'm unclear what the next phase of my life is going to look like. And I'm, I'm really trying my best, though it's hard for me because I like to do stuff, to be patient and allow inspiration to arise. So that's primarily my practice right now. In that space, there are like three or four projects that I'm working on because I kind of can't help myself and I you know, still need to pay rent. Um, so the three, the big, I'm writing a book right now about sales, which is essentially just my love letter to sales and just to creating the possibility of like, yeah, you can love sales and really, really love it and do a great job with it. So I'm writing that book. Um, I'm, I'm actually wanted to offer. So if anybody who's listening to this wants like a beta version of it, I don't know how many chapters that'll be. I'm happy to send a beta version. I'll give you a link if you guys want it. I, my only request is that if I send you a beta version, just give me some feedback on it. But yeah, I'm happy to share a little bit of what I talked about today in the book. And I'm happy to send you a copy as well, Rob. Yeah, that'd be great. And I'm happy to put it in the in the show notes and all that kind of thing. Cool. Um, I am creating, and because I don't, you know, we and I don't totally know exactly when the podcast will come out. I am creating <laughs> a small little mastermind for new coaches where we're going to work on sales is going to be a theme. Improving your coaching is going to be a theme. But a lot of these like business building pieces that are like the things that I wish I'd known, like I wish I'd set up my business with profit first at first. Um, I wish I had been very clear about when I was going to hire my first employee. I wish I'd been really clear about who I was as a coach early one. I wish I'd practiced sales more diligently. I wish I'd practiced coaching more diligently. I wish I'd learned more about declaration and creating a sales board and giving myself to do's and a structure for my day. A lot of the stuff that I really suffered through the first year or two in coaching, I want to help newer coaches or coaches that are sort of like feeling a bit listless to get that stuff and really spend time with them. Cause I have a lot of new coaches that show up and want my support, but they just can't afford me. So I really feel called to work with them. So I'm creating that. And do, can you talk to the, like, what do you think it is that's calling you so much to that? Well, one is that this, those coaches just started showing up. So I just started having a lot of conversations with coaches that were like, I want to work with you. And, and then I tell them I rate it and they're like, I, there's no way I can't possibly <laughs> afford that. And I'm like, cool, I got it. And so I'm like, Oh, I mean, in the past, the way I've typically created is like, I decide I'm going to do something and then I just make it happen. That's how the dojo was. All right, I'm going to charge $25,000 and I go do it and find a client. And because I'm in this phase where I'm in a lot of reflection and deep spiritual practice, I mean, the first time in a long time I'm meditating like 90 minutes a day. It's been years since I've meditated that much. Um, I'm just in like, oh, well, what's showing up? And all of a sudden these coaches started showing up and I was like, oh, okay, this is what's showing up. I'm just going to go with it. So, uh, yeah, it just seems like the thing to do. Writing was the same way. Like I did a, I did this thought exercise in my no woman vision quest where I said, well, what if I had a terminal disease or not a terminal disease? What if I had a disease that made it impossible for me to be in a relationship? Like my oxytocin was toxic or something. It would kill people. What would I do with my life? And I, it was actually really quite simple. I was like, oh, I'd spend time with my friends. I'd go to cities and live in places with my friends. And I'd spend time on my writing. I, I don't, know why like you know that's just obvious like that's what i spend time on so it's like okay well then i just just start writing and so i just decided i'm gonna write a book 
Um, and I joined a really dope class with this guy named Ben Allen. So I've been writing my book with him. So in the same way, like the coaches just sort of showed up and I was like, okay, I guess this is the thing to do. My friend, Matt has been like, I'm trying to get you to do this thing for three years. So <laughs> apparently the universe wants me to do it, uh, you know? And so I'm like, all right, well, I'm just going to do it. And not, I'm not worried that much about how it's going to look or if I get four people or 10, like, I'm just like, great, you know, these people are here. Let's see if I can serve them. Um, and then I am still involved in doing the coaching dojo. Matt Thielen and I are partnering with a company called Atlas to bring kind of coaching technology to leaders. I'm sure we'll run a coaching dojo in the spring. I still feel I have these three missions. Well, I have at least one mission that feels alive and I'll share that one. My one mission that really feels alive is that I really feel an obligation to create other really incredible coaches. Like I see the impact I can have on people's lives. And let's say I do this, you know, let's say I'm super lucky and do this for another 40 years, right? Because I'm almost 40. So let's say I coach, you know, 10 people a year. That's what, 400 people? There are billions of people on the planet. You know, 400 people will change a lot, but it's not going to change everything. So I'm like, I've got to create coaches that really get the power of what this is and really treat it with honor and respect. And I used to complain about like, the coaching industry. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to stop complaining and I'm just going to start working on it. And so that's what the coaching dojo is. I still feel really called to that mission and talking and teaching about how to be a really incredible coach so that the world can be filled with more incredible coaches doing this kind of work. For people that don't know, what's the distinction between the dojo and the mastermind? I guess the mastermind is new, so you don't necessarily know that, but but in, in, yeah. in the way you're talking about it, it sounds like in your mind, there is a clear distinction. So yeah. The coaching dojo is, yeah, specifically in a very intensive tr- training that will train a coach's being as well as their ability as a coach. So basically the way that the coaching dojo got created is my uh, former partner and myself. So this is my ex-fiance, incredible woman, Christina Salerno. We created the business together by, you know, basically we'd been coaching for about a year and a half, each of us. And we were considered by most other people to be like really great coaches, but we'd only coaching a year and a half. And so we're like, well, what? Their coach has been coaching for five years. We talk to them like, oh, this coach is bad, man. Like they're not good coaching. And so like, well, what, how do we learn how to do this really quickly? And so we actually literally went back and deconstructed what we did to learn how to coach, right? So some of it's like the 75 conversations I had. And, but there's also a way in which my perspective on Zen and meditation practice and her perspective of being a musician and an athlete had us approach coaching as a form of deliberate practice in a very particular kind of way that we just kind of did unconsciously. So we literally went back and deconstructed it. Then we went and studied the science of deliberate practice with the, I also this crazy idea, like, could you create a master coach in a week or a month, right? Like, we think it takes years to create a master coach. Like, could we create it in six weeks? That's the kind of premise we, like, worked on. And then we created that basically a really intense container to try to do that. Um, and, yeah, it's both, like, a lot of structural pieces and a lot of, like, we basically strip away all the artifice of coaching and just teach, like, here are the fundamental principles. Like, coaching is about mental models. Coaching is about um, the balance between um, leading and holding. Coaching is about your ability to create awe in the moment. Coaching is about creativity. So we just literally teach these things by mostly giving people a little nugget and then saying, okay, great. Now you're just going to practice it a ton. Just practice and, you know, practice, get feedback, practice, get feedback, practice, get feedback. So it's, that's primarily about becoming a great coach. We talk a little about the business of coaching, but that's not the main thing. The mastermind is really about how do you build a really incredible coaching practice kind of from the ground up. It's business building, it's sales, it's working on, it's still working on your being because that's a, you know, spiritual practice of being at the root of everything I do. But um, it's really about how to establish a really amazing coaching practice. So it's, this is more about the skill set, kind of the certification, the dojo is, and the mastermind is more about the business side, which the skill set's all going to get woven into, but it's much more about how to build a business. Nice. Nice. 
Uh, and we'll put you know we'll put links to all that sort of stuff in the in the page and all that kind of thing. There's no link to the mastermind because I <laughs> I don't have a website for it. And I'm literally just like I'm like I'm just not going to build anything. I'm just going to see who shows up and then do it. So nice. Well, well, yeah. Well, so if people are interested, what do they do? They email you. You just have to email me directly. Yeah. Nice. I mean, by the time this comes out, it'll probably probably be full because I'm. You said it may be a month, and I want to start in, in July. So I don't know when this okay. is coming out, yeah, but but if you're yeah, but if you're interested, I mean, I might do another one. I don't know. I'm clear. I'm doing this one, and that's as far as I can see right now. There's a lot. First of all, I think that's a great practice for everybody to do always. But during the pandemic, and while we're basically having race riots, yeah, just only like you know being committed as far as you can see is a pretty good idea. So. This is what's showing up now. I'll run the program one time and then I'll take a look and decide what to do again. Yeah, nice. I think it's a great, great way of running a business most of the time. Yeah. Um, well, that's a particular practice, right? There's <laughs> right. No right. There's no right answer. <laughs> there is a particular time and practice where you need to set quarterly priorities and have a strategic plan and KPIs. And I mean, I do all of that stuff with my corporate clients, right? So that's a very important practice too. So no, no right answers. Don't, if anyone think they got any right answers from me, just for, I don't have any answers. <laughs> I'm just a fool as much as the rest of everybody. So. But I think that's partly why it's nice to have someone speaking so openly about what they do, because then people can see, oh, I could do it like that. Uh, or I could yeah. try. Do I choose to? You know, and they could listen to somebody yeah, yeah. else having the same thing and, and, and have the same thought. Um, Toku, so, so is there anything else before we finish that you wanted to share in this conversation or anything that we've missed that you want to say before we bring it to a close? What would you like to be acknowledged for? How do you mean? I actually do this at the end of all my coaching sessions. So part of what I understand about leadership is that the way leaders typically function is that they, um, they go along working super hard, hoping someone will notice and that someone will give them some praise. Mm. Right. And then typically people don't give them the praise they want and the way that they want, they end up being depleted their whole time. So it shows up with coaches, it shows up with leaders. So my opinion or perspective is that um, to be a responsible leader is to know we need to get acknowledged for and get acknowledged. So I was just present. We talked about me a lot today, which I love, yeah. but you're an amazing host. And so I was curious to know from you, like from today's conversation, what would you like to be acknowledged for? Mm. That is a generous question. Thank you. Well, I, I feel present in this moment that there is a, that it's been for creating the space for this conversation mm. to happen. That it's like, yeah. It's a, it's a funny thing making a, because I do some work with coaches as well, and I love that too. And it's a really interesting. It's been a good practice for me, right, to, to make this space for other coaches, some of whom do other work with coaches. Mm. You know, and so actually it's a, been a really great practice in am I, and it's, sometimes it really hasn't felt like that. I was enrolling my group program earlier this year. There were a few people who were like, yeah, basically I'm going to not work with you. I'm going to go and work with this other person that I only know about because they were a guest on your podcast and that really tested the like generosity in me of, of creating this thing. But I, in this moment, just feel very grateful to have had the time with you to be able to, um, to share that with a community of people. And so, yeah. so can I, can I pause you? Absolutely. Cause you made a great request for acknowledgement. I don't want to miss it. And I, yeah. I want to draw just, just a quick distinction for, for the audience, which is that a compliment is something about somebody's appearance or they're doing. So I could say like, oh, that's a lovely sweater, but you take your sweater off and then that loveliness goes away. An acknowledgement is about who somebody's being, right? So it's always with them. That's why it's different. So um, Robert, would be okay if I acknowledge you? Yeah, that'd be great. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really want to acknowledge you for, first of all, for being space. I think you created space, but there's a way in which it was so easy to talk about myself and my life and all these different things because like, 
there is just a space that you are, that you invite people into where they feel like oh, there's room to talk and breathe and be with another human being. So I want to acknowledge you first for your space. I want to acknowledge you for the courage that you have to like put yourself out there in a podcast, to have these conversations with people that you respect or admire or interested in, and to really be genuinely curious. And that's the last piece is like, I really want to acknowledge you for your curiosity. One thing I feel like I get about you is that you have this insatiable desire to understand and learn life and to, to, to figure things out and figure yourself out and, and not just so you can like feel better, but so you can really do something meaningful with the world. So thank you for your space. Thank you for your courage. And thank you for your curiosity. Thank you, Toku, for the acknowledgement. That's, that's beautiful. And yeah, lovely to receive. Yeah. It was lovely to be with you today. Hmm. And look, I, uh, you mentioned it, I mentioned it, we could jump off and do this. Uh, we could have jumped off in a load of different tangents, uh, and create other podcasts. So, uh, maybe we'll do that again sometime, but otherwise, thanks so much for the, yeah, the time, the energy, the, um, and, and also all the thought and the thought and rigor that you've brought to coaching, which I mm. think is a real gift, gift to the industry. Thank you. And let's speak again another time. Absolutely. Hey, everyone. Robbie here again. Um, just wanted to say a couple of things before the end of the show about... Um, about that final little beautiful piece of acknowledgement from Toku and just what slipped out there from me, which is just true and part of my experience. And so that's, you know, those who know my work know that I love to look at that kind of thing and share it. And I think there's a really important point there uh, that came out for me, um, you know, telling that story about what happened, which was, you know, enrolling for my coaching, uh, group coaching program, The Coach's Journey, and several people, not just one, but several saying, actually, I, you know, I'm not going to do this now. I'm going to work with someone I found out about through you. And it really was a test, you know. It, it, you know, in some ways, I wonder if I'm talking about the hunter and the monk here. You know, the monk knows that in the long term, being generous with creating things like this, the work that I'm called to create, like this podcast is absolutely the right thing to do. And the hunter sometimes gets a bit pissed off with the monk for doing that. Um, because it's like, no, let's 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 fill the group program. Let's let's, you know, put put food on the table. And of course, I know um that what I really want, the monk and also kind of Robbie, uh, whoever Robbie is around that, knows that I only want people on my group program who are perfect for me, who can't find um someone better to serve them elsewhere and if they find someone better to serve them elsewhere that's the right thing um so i know that and i certainly don't have any resentment for those like wonderful people who i hope are doing amazing work with other coaches and everyone who isn't working with me i hope is getting some amazing coaching from all kinds of of different places um but i you know first of all i want to share it because it's like ah other people may have that experience and be like why are you all reading my blogs and not becoming my clients and it's like well if you're playing the long game if you're really in this for the long haul that's a part of the work right planting seeds for the future and trusting the universe in some ways and the other side of it is that the the hunter perhaps in me um you know took a cue from this conversation with toku really which and i've been thinking about since we recorded which is perhaps also brought into relief by something I learned from Seth Godin, which is that generous doesn't always mean free. Um, and I'm not going to make this podcast, you, people pay for it or anything like that. It's always going to be free. But that there might be something generous that I can do to allow people um, to support it in different ways who don't want to be coached by me, but want to 
want to support the podcast. And so my, well, that's what I'm kind of musing on at the moment. At some point during the rest of the year, look out for those possibilities if you do want to support the podcast by um, in some way. Um, of course, a great way to do that is by leaving reviews and ratings and um, sharing the podcast with other people. And it's super um, lovely when people I hear about someone who's sharing it and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to catch all that really, um, and just 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 show it to people because I think one of the things that happens as we put ourselves out into the world is that we run up against our humanity, and some of that is you know about being the hunter and the times when we don't successfully hunt, um, and some of the time some of the time it's about being generous, and the times where the generosity doesn't pay back when you think it will, and that's just life. And like in the conversation with Toku, you know, really running a business. A great way to think about it is what are you practicing um, and and how are you doing that? And it's it's a great thing to lean into all those moments of discomfort. There's um, absolutely beautiful learning there. So um, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Toku. Hope you take loads away from it and, and look forward um, to sharing the next episode with you in a month or so's time. Take care all. <laughs>